0: Welcome to adult music the podcast with music for the mature mind you're here at episode 119 just one more to go to 120 i'm your co-host russ here
1: on the other mic is mike mike on the mic as the beastie boys once said mm-hmm.
0: as usual <laughs> we're here with our Mix of six recordings, three classical and three jazz, interesting music that you probably won't find talked about
1: anywhere else. Yeah, this this time, yeah, we've got some pretty exotic stuff. And we are I gotta say, before we start this, we are feeling the weight of the weather. Yes. Here in Kyoto. It's really I don't know what it is. It's kinda cloudy, but it's not raining. It's I don't know, there's kinda like a, a heaviness to it. It's it's muggy.
0: Yeah, there's uh, another typhoon, as we spoke about in the previous yeah. episodes, there's another mm. one that's coming through. Luckily, it's going south. It's going to miss most of the country, but it's bringing all that low pressure mm. and precipitation through. And so yesterday yeah. into today was rainy. Tomorrow's going to be rainy, mm. about 92%
1: humidity. The, the humidity is really what it is because it hasn't really rained. It it, it, it yeah. was. They said rain all day, but it didn't rain. It just. But it was just kind of horrible outside. I don't
0: and, know. Uh, you know, Both of us are pretty healthy, guys. We're pretty much always ready to go. Uh, We don't get sick very often. Mm -hmm. But I noticed this week in the people around me, people (laughs) were
1: just like, you know, sapped of energy and verve. They were kind of zombie-like. I think any health on our part is more just the luck of the draw with our uh, genes as opposed to our lifestyles. (laughs) Could be. I think sitting in a chair listening to music all day isn't really the the gateway to health, you know?
0: Right next to my... uh, Speaker here. I've got a a pull-up stance, so you know okay. I'm over there doing some pull-ups uh, a lot of times. So yeah. try to balance out the uh, sitting with some
1: exercise. And I have a bicycle. That's about it. I just ride my bike everywhere.
0: Yeah, that's good too. Mm-hmm. In Japan, we can do that, and we're not a car dependent. uh
1: It's a very bikeable place, here. Japan. have I say.
0: But anyway, yeah, things are getting a little weird. It's that time of year, the rainy season and early typhoons. But we've got good music to bring us through everything, yeah. and I think we're gonna like the interesting mix of tunes and songs and compositions we have both in classical and jazz tonight and for all that music when we get to it you can find links to spotify and apple music if you haven't heard it yet they'll be in the description for the episode there there's also a full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on deezer that's a cd quality streaming platform From France, that we usually prefer, but we're getting kind of irritated
1: with this week. We're getting irritated (laughs) on the classical end. I have to say, they've been great until this year. Yeah. Suddenly around uh, February, March, I started Mm. noticing, or Russ started noticing this, but I'm noticing it now too, so I'm using it more and more for classical music, that they're dropping like tracks from um, certain classical albums. And a lot of them too. I mean, there have been over 10 now that I've noticed this in.
0: So the first recording you have. Tonight it's got like 16 tracks on it and yeah. I copied all of the track information because I want, you know, the full kind of, yeah. uh, I make sure to do that too. Yeah. From Presto that you sent me the link to. Yeah,
1: I have to say, let me give a shout out to Presto music because they're just fantastic with the way they, uh, I buy CDs from them. They're in England. Yeah. And uh, their listing too, their whole website is really well laid out and they're on the money ninety five percent
0: of the time. Yeah. I found a few mistakes, but they're usually really good. So anyway, yeah. I had the list that I copied and I, I sat down on my you know plush sofa <laughs> leather cushions and I settled in and I was gonna take some notes when I was listening last Monday and then I, I said, Wait a minute, this is not the track that the list goes to. <laughs> and then so I said, Let me see, wait, okay, it's not there. And then the next track came up and it was out of sequence. Wait, I can't go on any further. It was so, you know, out of sync. Not only were things uh,
1: misordered, but there were like four missing tracks. But that, that one had two missing tracks on it and they were misordered like too. Yeah, there were two. Cause it had 16 tracks on the CD and there were 14 on Deezer.
0: Anyway. It's correct on Deezer now. So if you haven't listened to it, it or even if you did listen to it, I fixed it in our playlist.
1: Oh, in our playlist. In our playlist. Okay. So okay. for our listeners, you can find it. So our playlist is actually more accurate than uh, Deezer's actually playlist. I actually wrote to them today. I said, you got to you gotta get on this. We'll have to yeah. see what, they, what happens with that.
0: I don't know what the problem okay. is
1: there. Yeah, I have more to say about that album because uh, it was really good. And uh, especially because it's on an, I have it on a physical SACD and those sound oh. so good. I just yeah. love them so much.
0: Anyway, you can find the links all there. And if you don't see the full description or the list or the links, don't show up clearly or aren't active on wherever you listen to us, app or platform. Just come over to our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-A-A-N, and everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe or follow. Tell a friend who likes music. That'll help us grow our audience. And take a minute. Give us a review or a ranking. We haven't got a review or a ranking in a while now. Uh, You know, if you're listening, especially on uh, Apple podcasts, uh, just take a minute, hit those stars, uh, put in a little note that really helps us out in the recommendations, helps us cut through all the K-pop podcasts that (laughs) uh, flood the recommendations. There's very few jazz and classical things in there. You can also come over. We've got a Facebook page. I put up a bunch of uh, new jazz releases this week. A lot of good stuff came out. If you want to find out what's coming out new every day, I'm up. I five at the latest with my coffee, scouting the new releases. Wow. Whoever I find the best of for that day, I share it right away there. So if you want to you. You know, save yourself time and find good music, if you uh, think you agree with my tastes, then yeah. you can find what I find right away there. You can also leave a message or comment there and uh, see some interaction that we have with some of the musicians. And uh, this week we got a lot of great feedback from John Ila Booney on yeah, his thanks, album that we did last week, and we loved uh, that record. Though yeah. he shared the episode. Actually, we heard back from all of the uh, jazz artists. Yeah, uh, they're usually we, quite. We gracious. almost never
1: hear from the classical yeah. artists. They do write back sometimes, though. Yeah, but once in yeah. a while,
0: like uh, you know, even the composer. What was it, Nimrod?
1: Nimrod Borenstein wrote, wrote to us. Yeah, yeah he, he, I think he's got a new uh, album out too. We'll yeah. have to, uh Kind of, yeah, give him a little special preference there. We'll have to see if we maybe we'll check to be that out.
0: Kind of more. Yeah you know, networks you have to go through to uh, get to the classical musicians. But jazz Mm -hmm. operates more on
1: ground level, you know. Especially the jazz artists that we're featuring. I think if we were to go for some of the big names, we probably wouldn't hear from them. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: John was uh, kind enough to share our review, and we really love that album. If you haven't heard it, uh, you should, uh, you know, You Are Not Alone, go back and check that out. It's
1: special. It's not just good, it's special, you know. So I think uh, people should hear that. It's an album
0: that, takes you places. So you yeah. should uh, go on that
1: little journey and check it out. Especially since it's, we can't get out of here because it's too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> right. This is the only way we could travel this summer. Yeah. <laughs> Between high airline prices and the weak yen we have here in yeah. Japan, we're, we're, we're kind of, we're grounded.
0: <laughs> so yeah, check that out. Come over and see us on Facebook. Or if you'd like to write to us by email, any comments, questions, suggestions, We'll be happy to uh, read your message and reply to you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Now, this week, we do not have any uh, official Dies Iris theme. For no, we
1: do have some deaths, though, departed, yeah.
0: But we have a couple that we should uh, mention that will probably yeah. ring some bells in yeah. uh, listeners' minds. And the first one you brought to my attention, because yeah. uh, it brought me back to... All that kind of new agey and fusiony stuff from the
1: eighties. Oh, you're going to mention this guy first, okay? Yeah, I guess <laughs> George Winston, the Wyndham Hill pianist, who I remember so well from the nineteen eighties, because most of the girls I dated had a Wyndham Hill <laughs> record <laughs> in their dorm rooms. Wow. It was it was okay. I mean, you know, g- yeah. given the situation I was listening to it in, I rather yeah. enjoyed it. But he was a little too. Uh, Casual for me, I think. Anyway, but uh, George Winston, who was very popular in the 1980s mm-hmm. on the Wyndham Hill label, that was the time when New Age was really kind of right. soft and kind of wallpaper sounding. You know, it's kind of changed now, so it's got a little more mm. kind of content to it now. But uh, he would just kind of doodle on the piano, and um, yeah. that would that would be a record. But he was- um, It's a big name. Part, yeah. He was a big name, and he was part of our uh, youth, let's say. Right. So um, yeah. and I have a lot of happy memories of- I bet you do. The situations I was in when I was hearing his music. (laughs) So there you go. All
0: right. Recipes, George Winston. George Winston. Winston. And of course, Mm. probably everyone has heard this now, but uh, we lost the vocalist, Astrid Gilberto, this week. And Mm. although she's not really a jazz musician or part of that, but her wispy and untrained voice graced that wonderful recording. With uh, her husband, and Stan Getz, and brought us the girl from Ipanema, Cocovado, right. and you know, without that vocal element, maybe Bossa Nova wouldn't have spread
1: as wide as it did in the '60s. That one record really started that all out. Yeah, didn't? we should mention what it is just in case, because there are people oh, right. <laughs> that, that might are, not, know they not know. Yeah, the the uh, Getz Gil- Gilberto album. Right? Yeah, that's what it's called. Right. And it's got the girl from Ipanema on it. Ipanema,
0: Array. Corcovado, a great version of that yeah. on there too.
1: It's an easy listen. It's really it's an easy, uh,
0: wonderful listen. I still listen to it once in a while. Yeah, me Everybody too. likes I've it. I've got it too. Yeah. And it brought on, you know, that whole craze of bossa nova in jazz, which you know, before Brazilian in the '40s, you know, even with Dizzy Gillespie, the Afro-Cuban rhythms had come in and become mm-hmm. part of jazz. But this new Brazilian craze of music, bossa nova, you know, somehow it just fit especially like the lyrical phrasing of Stan Getz. And uh, Mm -hmm. it brought you to this relaxed kind of uh, mood. And, you know, now it's permanently a part of jazz. You often hear a bossa tune on any new jazz recording. But uh, her voice, you know, having a vocal element uh, catches other people in the regular public's attention too. So everyone knew this song at the time and for decades later. And uh, yeah, it's sad to see an iconic voice like that go. out. She was 83 years old. Right. So we can thank her for part of the popularity of that boss of sound. So rest in yeah. peace, Astrid Gilberto.
1: It must have been kind of a fun life to be in heaven having, having that behind you, you know, yeah. that kind of a career, you know.
0: Oh, before we uh, jump into this week's musical selections, we also want to give a shout out and recommendation to our friends over at the Same Difference podcast. That's Same Difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard set up every other week by Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra. They focus on jazz standards, as the title indicates, looking at several versions each episode of uh, Famous Standard, and they play little snippets from each one, talk about the history and what they like and don't like, and generally in a good mood and fun podcast to listen to. Kind of complements what we do. They focus on the old stuff, and we focus on the new releases. This week we're going to hear a lot of standards done in a really... (laughs) <laughs> a unique way. So I'd be interested to see what they thought of some of these uh versions here, but we'll get
1: to that later once we get into the jazz that's program. Gonna, I think that's going to be way at the end of this, I think. Yeah, we have to go end. ahead an hour and a half to <laughs> if you make it out there. But Not to uh, hear that one.
0: Anyway, yeah check the episode description. You'll find a link to their podcast and you also hear their promo if you stick around to the end of the audio of our podcast. So do check yeah. those guys out. Yeah,
1: I like them myself. Okay, so Earlier, we were talking about the uh, this album, uh, Seicento Stravagante, yeah. music for cornetto and keyboard. Now, yeah. let me just mention the artist. This is David Brutti on the cornetto hmm. and Nicola Lamon on the organ and harpsichord. Okay, now, <laughs> and this is a Beast SACD. Okay, hmm. it's an SACD if you're buying the physical copy. Don't worry, it will play on your CD player if you uh, don't have an SACD player. But, boy, th- these kind of recordings, because they have organ on them, they sound so good as an SACD. It's mm. such a rich sound. I love this guy's name, David Brutti. Mm. <laughs> Italian names are fantastic because Brutti, it's the plural for ugly. Yeah. So, and I love the way they just – they'll just if you, if his name was in English, he'd be like David Ugly. <laughs> they just <laughs> – the Ugly family or something. Yeah. Like
0: they just keep these
1: names. Isn't that what the
0: uh, Italians called Charles Bronson? Not the plural, but uh... –
1: Bronson, yeah, I think oh, that I was know. his
0: nickname in the Italian cinema.
1: Is it Brutto or something? Yeah, I don't know. Brute or something like that. Yeah. Could be. Anyway, he's uh, he's his cornet playing. Certainly isn't uh, Brutto. It's no, really good. No. In fact, it's very impressive. He plays quite a few instruments on this album. I should mention this because when I first saw this album, I thought, oh, cornet it's going to be like a a cornet, like the um, the mm. brass instrument. But uh, no, it's because yeah, you Baroque is the wooden one. Yeah. <laughs> but this is like the wooden. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not a cornet. It's a Cornet with two T's in English. It's not just one T, right? But an uh, Italian cornetto, and I'll be calling it the cornetto, sticking with the Italian name throughout, just to distinguish it from the. I don't want anybody to be confused with the uh, the cornet, yeah. which is kind of like a, like a trumpet, sort of. Okay, <laughs> so the it's an early Renaissance slash baroque wind instrument, not brass. It's wind, and it comes in a curved and straight versions. And there's also a mute version too, and we hear yeah. three of them on the recording, all three of these. And these these um, instruments were made in from in 2018 2019, so they were new newly new made versions, instruments. Yeah. yeah, we're also going to hear two organs and a harpsichord, and I'll talk about them as they come up. Now, the booklet notes on this uh, CD, if you decide to buy it, or on this essay CD, which I recommend you do if you like this kind of music. Now, I have to say, when I see a title like Seicento Stravagante, it's like going to be Baroque Italian. I'm just all over that. I love this period so much. It's just kind of, I don't know, it does something for me. It was like the dawn of a new era in music. Uh, Baroque music really started Mm. in Italy in around 1600. And it started with the whole um, desire to um, figure out what ancient Greek theater was like and they figured oh you know in order to have like a play in an open air theater like that you would have had to chant the words so that they would carry so this whole new idea of uh singing started in italy and uh the brockier gives the first opera and the first great opera which is uh, orfeo by monteverdi there were others before that and um opera became what it became today eventually over the hmm. over the years it became this uh, huge form of entertainment before movies it was like the the grandest form of entertainment you can have up until the uh 20th century the booklet notes talk about the instrumentalized vocal styles that we hear on this album and the more instrumentally conceived works that replace them later and um, i could go into all of this but i decided to just let you read uh, charles brewer's notes because otherwise we'd be here forever because they're, they're yeah. highly detailed there's a lot to know about these works if you want to know them or you could just kick back and listen to them. They're pretty uh they're a pretty easy listening and a very interesting one as well. Yeah. Because as Russ mentioned to me before the podcast started, you always have these great dissonant like passing notes in the <laughs> in the melodies and harmony and stuff, and they just, yeah. just they suddenly jar you. And I just love that. There are these sudden rhythmic changes for new sections without any setup. It's just really wonderful.
0: Right near the beginning on the second mm-hmm. track, there's these like upward swoops. Yeah. It's like, what is that? It's pretty interesting. And, you know, I was a trumpet player. And so the Cornetti as a instrument that you play with an amateur, but that it's made of wood. There's mm-hmm. nothing in existence today like this. So it's a mm-hmm. sound from a different time and a different place. Right. It really unusual that you're not going to hear in any other music other Mm -hmm. than this sort of revival of this kind of period with new instruments. And so that makes it really unique. And reading on the history of this, I came across a a passage that said, for a time, trumpets were banned in Germany. You weren't allowed to play them. I don't know why I said you know, probably my parents
1: wish they were when I was practicing when I was young, but apparently, uh, you know, the wooden instrument your parents are apparently, uh, German of German descent. Yeah. No, no, they weren't, but
0: <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, you know, this instrument has a much softer overall kind of output and tone. And I guess, uh, they're actually the or the wood was wrapped with leather, mm-hmm. uh, in some of them you know, so it's really fascinating because there's nothing like this, you know, that continued on. And so they had to investigate how these instruments were made and then, you know, reproduce them. And you play it actually out of the corner of your mouth hmm. with a different kind of amateur than the trumpet. So it's right. kind of a you know, fascinating thing with a very unique tone that's I find kind of enchanting.
1: Which kind of leads you to wonder, how, how do you even learn this? Like somebody would have had to relearn this yeah. entire technique from from books. I guess know, so. There would be yeah. nobody to, to teach it to you. Yeah. And then you'd, handed on to students i would guess i'd like right. it would be nice to talk to david Brutti about this actually yeah. cuz he's, he's he's a really excellent player he gets a great tone i would recommend that listeners check out uh youtube for some of this not just for the um the cornetto but there's also an instrument on this what is it oh i can't, i wrote it down somewhere but it's buried in my text here all right when it comes up i'll find it <sighs> i can't remember but if there's an there's a keyboard instrument like the lighter one Mm. It was in the middle track. I can find it here. I didn't know what it was, and I, had to l- I looked on YouTube, and what an odd-looking instrument this thing is. It's a Regal, oh. okay? On track eight, we'll get to that when we talk about it. And it's an odd instrument. It's got bellows behind the keyboard, and you work the bellows via pedals with your feet. Oh, wow. It's just bizarre, and it makes an odd nasally sound, too. I can see why it went out of favor. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, at the time, you know, when you wanted um, sustain and you didn't have like a huge church organ available, I guess you would have yeah. used one of these things. Pump it up. Yeah. Right. <laughs> all right let's go through the tracks before we, because there's a lot to talk about on these anyway. Also, we have all these wonderful unknown Italian composers with fantastic names, like the first one, Giovanni Battista Fontana. Oh, yeah. Giovanni Battista means John the Baptist. So a lot of people at the time were named <laughs> after <laughs> John the Baptist, right? Let's see. Uh, Sonata Terza. Okay. Now, on this one, we're hearing, if you want to follow along and get the tone of what all these instruments are, we're hearing the straight coronato on this one. And this one has kind of a low recorder-type sound, but it's rougher in the edges and attack. It's actually more, a lot harsher than a, a recorder. Actually, is kind of a, has a nice, smooth sound. This really doesn't have that. But the uh, the piece has a lovely melody with a springy rhythm. Actually, all of these really do. And is accompanied here by the harpsichord. Now, the overall sound is rather quiet, with the corneto sticking out a bit at times. And I really liked on this album the realistic harpsichord sound in terms of its volume. It kind of sounds like a harpsichord that you would hear live if you were in yeah. a... This is interesting because you really can't turn it up, otherwise the sound of the cornetto will blow you away because it's, it's recorded right. very accurately. So the harpsichord really sounds, not faint, but it's very, very quiet. And this is a good uh, reproduction of the sound of the, that you would hear if you were in a concert hall listening to the harpsichord. It's very clearly audible, but uh, very quiet. Uh, the cornetto is placed far to the left on the recording. I, I would have liked it more in the center. And I'm listening to yeah. this in five-channel stereo too, and it's still using the left side of the... <laughs> I didn't check the back speakers. Those are usually ambient, but uh, he's like standing on the side of the stage, and I guess they had the, uh, hmm. the harpsichord would be more on the right. But the harpsichord seemed to take up more of the, of the space. The piece goes into some variations of the theme. This is the um, technique that will be used in all of these before composers figured out all of these, um, you know, how to get around yeah. the harmonic wheel of, uh, you know, circle of fifths. They used to do things like this. Um, there's sudden changes of rhythm and style, and we're accustomed to to instrumental music of this period, and the playing is very lively and very present throughout the album. Track two? uh just bathe in these names. Girolamo Frescobaldi. Canzon terza della La This is uh, again the straight cornetto and this uh, track features the main organ used on the album. It was built by Paolo Cipri uh, circa 1578 and is located at Monte San Giovanni in Bologna in Italy. Now this has been uh, reconstructed in recent years, I think in the, I can't remember the 70s or now, it was later than that. Let me check here. It was built in circa 1578 and restored by Paolo Tolari in 1991, okay? But it still retains its its kind of old sound. One of the wonderful things about these organs, and this is especially true in Italy, like I've been to Paris and you can hear a lot of them um, in, in France, and you can hear a lot of um organ concerts in the big churches. And mm. they all have these, it's not quite an American organ, but they have these big, powerful sounds. They're more like, the Romantic era or the or the classical era, but the very old Italian organs—they all have their own personality. They're not as big sounding, but they have this really kind of worn-in kind of quality to the sounds, mm. and they're all very individual. They're almost like people, you know. You kind of listen to one and then another, and you you kind of want to hear them all once you hear one. Anyway, it's um slightly piercing at the level of power here, but quickly becomes lyrical in this piece. And the organ, of course, is capable of many timbral changes, and the organist here uses several appealing ones, uh, setting the tone of the cornetto off in a variety of ways. Now, this is really interesting. You're hearing the cornetto, which the sound doesn't really change once he starts playing it, but the organ sound changes a lot. So it's almost like you've got this character against like, these different backgrounds, and the whole yeah. way that it's set off, Like sometimes it blends in more, and sometimes the cornetto will stand out more. It's really... a Wonderful thing for the ears. And I think uh, you will really enjoy uh, this album for that reason, yeah. especially on these organ tracks. The cornetto here, and this may be d- because of the organ, it actually sounds brassy at points. Like, listen at uh, the two-minute and ten-second mark. This is track two. At 2.55, there's a variation with echoes from the cornetto. And echo means when you play a melody and then you repeat it quietly like it's coming from far away, like an echo. Mm. And uh, he does this um, effect here.
0: This one has some... Pretty cool modality changes too. It's in major, then it's in minor,
1: and it's right. Back. That happens like, a, lot yeah, in these, a lot in these pieces, yeah. But they don't get away from the key like very far. No, you no. know what I mean? That's the thing that, that hadn't been figured out yet. That's gonna come you know, Vivaldi Handel and finally Bach, who's gonna really set the whole thing mm-hmm. up for the classical era. The organ occasionally participates in this echo game too. It's really a fun piece. The third track. Annibale Padovano, (laughs) toccata del sesto toro. Is that a kind of cheese? I think think (laughs) Padovano might be. I don't know. But um, I think you're thinking of Parmesano. Or Pavano, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe, yeah. And Annibale is named after Hannibal, of course, the uh, invader of Italy during Roman times uh, from Persia. He he came over the the Alps with an army of uh, riding elephants. (laughs) <laughs> which Ooh. the Romans had never seen before. But the Romans managed to somehow repel him, despite all that. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this piece. We hear the straight cornetto again. It's long-sustained, loud, full-voiced chord from the organ at the beginning. This is a solo work and comes across as a solemn. Hmm. I love organ recordings and surround sound. Oh, I'm sorry. There's no straight cornetto in this. It's just the organ. Okay. I love organ recordings in surround sound. The quality is clear and close. So we don't get the large church ambience we often get on solo organ recordings. That's because this is a, it's not as loud an organ, although on the recording, it's very present. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just not as powerful as like, say, an American organ would be, which I really think are designed for their uh, destructive capacity (laughs) to weaken the foundation of the building. But this organ sounds it sounds rather small. The recording gives it an intimate feel, and you get a real sense of the organ's sound and power. It's a powerful piece. We're always hearing the um organ from Bologna, unless I mentioned differently. On two tracks is a different organ. Next, Dario Castello. This is a composer that I really like. I've liked all the music I've heard from him. Sonata Prima. And here we're hearing the curved cornetto for the first time on this track. So I guess we had that that mm. organ track and now we're changing the uh, cuernetto instrument, so we have a different sound. Oh, the organ's different on this track, too. This is the one that's built in Venice by an anonymous maker around the year 1660. It's located in the hamlet of Caprile in Belluno, Italy, a place I've never been, so I don't even know where this is. It's, but it's a tiny place. Hmm. Here, the organ sound is uh, breathier, and the uh, Cornetto, um plays w- with it um, in a fuller tone. I really enjoyed the character the instrument adds to this music. Uh, this piece is an example of the Stilus Fantasticus. We heard a whole album of these kind yeah. of works like uh, I think last year, which is an instrumental style of music with a lot of um, rhythmic, quick rhythmic changes in sections. The cornetto steps out a bit in his solo in this piece, getting more adventurous, pushing his tone to occasionally harsher and more piercing sounds. Um, this is a sound we sh- we need to get used to if we're listening to Renaissance era music like shawms and sackbutts. This uh, instrument is a little removed from that, but is capable of kind of like that harsh nasal sound. Yeah. Um, the piece ends rather suddenly and unexpectedly, and then we go on to track five, Andrea Gabrieli, who was famous for. Um, I think he worked in Venice with his brother Giovanni. They worked at St. Mark's. Anyway, canzon francese detto, qui la dira, this is a harpsichord solo, and we get the distant harpsichord. Now, at this point, the volume might be driving you crazy, but um, <laughs> this is actually the sound the harpsichord would make. It's still quiet here, even though it's a solo, they haven't moved it up, and that's good. Uh, maybe we should have had like <laughs> one section of all harpsichord mm. and one section of organ, I don't know, but uh, it's kind of odd as far as the uh, the volume of the recording goes you might be tempted to turn it up, but that would be a mistake. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the harpsichord is at uh, its concert volume, and uh, I want to nod to the engineer here, credited as Studio Seicento, they don't give a name of a person, huh. so, for giving it this much realistic distance and clarity, this piece is contemplative and spacious at a slow tempo. Track six, Girolamo Capsburger, a composer who I really like as well, Sinfonia, 13. I'll just say it in English. According to the booklet, both straight and mute cornetti are heard on this track. It starts with the harpsichord uh, with some immediately appealing chords. The cornetto plays the poignant theme. It then goes into a faster variation. And I'm guessing this is going to be the other cornetto in the faster variation. Dancing in triplet rhythm. It's a brief piece at 2 minutes and 10 seconds. Track 7, Andrea Falconieri, La Monarca, has the curved cornetto. It's fuller toned on this track, accompanied again by the harpsichord. At 139, a chromatic theme starts slowing the piece down and making it heavy. There's something funny about chromaticism, how it does that. It really weighs things down. Mm. It's like we were hearing like water flow, and suddenly it's like molasses. It's just kind of <laughs> slowly coming out. This minor key suits the cornetto well. It communicates great poignancy. Track eight, Riccardo Rognoni. Unge um, Berger, Berger, which I guess is old French. This is the straight cornetto. We're back to that. The keyboard instrument is a regal on this piece, and I mentioned that, which produces an odd, very light nasal sustained tone, imitating the more nasal cornetto in this work. It's a portable organ that has brass reeds held in resonators and two bellows, which are moved with pedals. And you can see pictures of it on the internet. and You can see someone actually playing it on YouTube if you just type it in, the regal, R-E-G-A-L, right? Regal organ, okay? That'll mm. help. Uh, the ear is constantly on that instrument since it's such a, it's a new sound on the recording. And the entire track is nasal in tone, a sound very reminiscent of like Renaissance, like groups, mm. like sack butts and cornets and that kind of thing. Uh, track nine, okay, Angelo Notari. Ay, che sacresce in me. This is a straight cornetto. The harpsichord starts this with gentle single notes and the cornetos comes in melodically with a softer attack. There's a great dissonance at around the 48 second mark leading to a cadence. This is one of the things that uh, Russ and I really love about music from this era when there's a passing tone and it's just this really dissonant note. That's at 48 seconds if you want to hear it and track 9. The piece is plain spoken and touching in its melody and unostentatious resolutions. Track 10 is an anonymously composed piece, Canzona su Partimento, and this is an organ solo. We're hearing the Venetian, orga, the Venetian made organ, here again, this is the one in Belluno, in softer voice, sounding present and solid, well caught on the recording, and I love its sound. It's got its own particular character and doesn't sound like a generic organ at all. Uh, the piece is rather short at 1 minute 46 seconds and engages in a song-like melody with chordal accompaniment. Track 11, Girolamo, Dalla Casa, a piece called Suzanne Un Jour, which was a very popular piece in the Renaissance. This is the curved cornetto. It was a, it's actually a song, I th- think. The cornetto starts this one, and the organ comes in with its lower keyboard range. Now we're back to the, the one in Bologna. This is the Bologna organ, which I think is kind of a bigger-sounding one, blending well with the soloist so that you almost don't realize it's an organ. The organ plays chords throughout in a solemn tone, as the cornetto embellishes the melody with figuration, varying his approach each time the melody comes around. Track 12, Giovanni Salvatore, Toccata Seconda del Nono Tono. This is an organ solo on the Bologna organ. The rest will be on the Bologna organ, in fact. This has an appealing full sound. The piece starts with full sustained harmony on the chords and figuration in the melodic area. There are lots of ornaments and I love the full range of sound the instrument and recording produce here. The piece has full spectrum sustained chords throughout, acting as accompaniment to the melodic material. It lets up a bit when the lower voices join in with a melodic activity at around the two minute and 10 second mark where the thematic material is passed from voice to voice. Track 13, Giovanni Martino Cesare, La Focarina. This has the straight cornetto and starts with a softer attack on the organ. The Cornetto's line is melodic and features a lot of ornamentation. <laughs> you can say that about mm. all of these tracks, I guess. The Cornetto actually has brassy qualities in this piece and shows a bit of virtuosity in some of the ornamentation. Track 14, Francesco Rognoni Taeggio, Pulcra S. Amica Mea. This has the mute cornetto, which we're really hearing for the first time all by mm. you know throughout the piece here. We've heard it once before but only as a, a part of the piece. This starts with the organ again, and we hear the mellower-toned mute cornetto play the downcast minor melody. The melody is beautifully shaped by Brutti to the point that it's touching in certain spots. He gets maximum motion out of the still, rather brash-sounding instrument. Track 15, Giovanni Battista Fontana, Sonata Seconda. Here, Brutti is playing the curved cornetto. This has the powerful, brassy-sounding curved cornetto we hear the organ again, the Bologna one. The organ accompaniment mostly features block chords with occasional decoration in the first section with the cornetto taking the melody. Brutti is able to shade the tone of this instrument well so that it's never got an in-your-face sound, as I think it probably would in the hands of a lot of people. Uh, he He kind of tempers it a bit you know
0: i bet i could play some real evil sounds on this if i got my hands on one (laughs) i I think you probably could indeed
1: (laughs) you wouldn't want to get it in the hands of a kid the organ starts imitating some of the cornetto's lines in the second section i like the somber tone brutti is able to get on the cornetto in the second in the section in the third minute at 344 a triplet dancing melody starts up very common in music of this era The cornetto plays winding lines. The next section slows down and the organ gets a church-like vibe as the cornetto ripples through its material. The last section has a bit of a lift to it and we hear imitation between the organ and cornetto. Finally, we end with a piece by Biagio Marini, Sonata per organo e violino o cornetto. So violin or cornetto. And of course, we're going to hear the cornetto, not the violin. This one, he uses the curved cornetto. We hear the, oh, this is the Venetian, or, the Venetian made organ again that's in uh, Belluno, Italy. Uh, for the second and final time, which sounds a bit more modern than the Bologna-based one, it introduces the theme, which the cornetto then repeats. We hear a lot of those uh, Monteverdian runs that he likes to use on trumpets. Think of the uh, Vespers, if you know the yeah. opening track of the uh, Monteverdi Vespers. You hear those great uh, brass fanfares. The organ has a lot of solo material in this piece, after which the cornetto will come in repeating it, then going off on its own tangent. At 132, there's a nice change of sound in the organ to a lower a lower end sound. Then the next section, the organ leaps up high in its mid-range as the cornetto imitates its lines. There's a really harsh, but perfectly musical outburst from the cornetto at the three-minute mark or so. After the organ's solo section, and this leads to a cadence of the organ To end the piece. Yeah, those kind of brash outbursts, that that could have easily been the whole album in certain players' hands. Okay, let me just say, listeners, I'm biased about this album right from the beginning. I love early Italian Baroque music of all sorts, as well as late Italian Renaissance music, and this really hit the spot for me. It's extremely well played. I made fun of David Brutti's name at the beginning, but he's a great player, and he should really be praised for his ability. On this album he'd be a great uh, person to talk to too about about this instrument the character of the works is perfectly realized as we would expect from two italian musicians steeped in the tradition of the period in fact i'd say that david brutti's playing of the various cornetti is amazing the instruments have the character of brash blaring instruments from the renaissance era and brutti keeps all of his instruments sounding tuneful and tonally under control I appreciated Beast's realistic sound on the harpsichord and the way the recording captured the organ used. In fact, the sound of the organ on most of the tracks, uh, the Paolo Cipri built in the Monte San Giovanni Bologna, Italy, has real character, as does the other used on only two tracks, located in Caprile in Belluno, Italy, which is in the Veneto, not far from Venice, actually. Both organs are restored, but have such fantastic character and individuality that I was mesmerized each time I heard them. The whole album... It's a unique approach to music that's becoming more available, but that I feel still isn't familiar enough. And if you like this era of music, I'd say you have to hear this. I'd encourage everyone else to sample it at least. Uh, The music is expertly played. All of the instruments have their own unique character and timbre, not least the organs. And uh, I will be returning to this, absolutely.
0: Even though I've heard cornetto before, and we've had a few recordings with them on the podcast. It's still an unusually charming sound that comes from a different time and place and always makes me tune into
1: it. Yeah, It definitely grabs the attention. (laughs) Yes.
0: Everything here is played with enthusiastic spirit and a real kind of sprightly energy. There's a lot of snap to the lines and uh, it makes it a lot of fun.
1: That sprung Italian rhythm that comes with the uh, sunshine of that uh, fantastic country.
0: And I enjoyed the melodies a lot. They're easy to follow and pleasing. And the unexpected harmonic changes and interesting cadences yeah. you know, that sort of, you know, we're used to, we always say this on the podcast, but we got used to, you know, the codification in Baroque with Bach and then how everything is sort of neatly smoothed out in the late Baroque into classical. Here, there's still lots of unexpected turns and uh, strange resolutions, changing modalities, and it uh, really catches your attention there. And as Mike mentioned, I noticed that the loudness varies a lot between tracks because of the natural volume differences in the harpsichord and the organs. And that's not a bad thing. I'm glad that they didn't kind of manipulate the levels to sort of get a, a, a normalized sound here. I would just suggest to get maximum enjoyment out of this recording. Give yourself a quiet place where you can listen to everything on a straight through listen and you know, you may have to adjust the volume a little bit, but you're gonna get the actual realistic volume of the harpsichord in a performance, which often sounds unusually large when they record it yeah. uh, in, you know, modern recordings. But this is a really natural type of sound and gets a idealized balance between the instruments, I think. So yeah, a lot of fun, enjoyable music and great performances.
1: Yeah, you know, the cuernetto stays, uh, stays at the same volume pretty much throughout, so you can adjust the volume according to that instrument when it, where it sounds comfortable. Right. And then if the organ comes in really loud or the harps comes in really quietly, just leave it. You know, that's the way it's yeah. supposed to sound, I would say. Anyway, off to the second recording, uh, Rachmaninoff, um, yes. the 150th anniversary of his birth, I believe, this year. So this is our second Rachmaninoff album because we heard the Vespers earlier right. uh, in the year uh, and around Easter. This is um, Rachmaninoff's Symphony Number no. 2. And then it also has his prelude in C-sharp minor orchestrated by Leopold Stokowski. Mm. Stokowski, by the way, was a really famous conductor who very famously conducted without a baton. He just used his, his fists <laughs> and his hands. And Boulez did that too. Boulez never, Pierre Boulez never used to use a baton either. But uh, Stokowski, um, many people will know him. He's the first conductor I think I ever saw because um, I never actually saw him, though because he was the uh, conductor in um, Disney's Fantasia. So right. he's, and you hear his voice in that movie and you see his profile and he shakes hands with Mickey Mouse at one point. Um, oh, by the way, in all those old Bugs Bunny cartoons, when Bugs Bunny comes out and all the, um, the Paul, that's him. Yeah. It's Leap supposed to be Stakowski. <laughs> <laughs> that's who they're referring to. Yes. With the, with the, with the, you know, with the bass singer, right? Yeah. yeah. He's holding this note for a long time and all his buttons on his uh, tuxedo were popping off, you know? Yeah. It was a great cartoon. Check that out. Okay, this is played by the Symphonia of London and John Wilson, a, an ensemble who have just wowed me many, many times. Um, so I wanted to hear this, and this is a chandos, and it's also an SACD, mm. and uh, that helps a lot. Okay, now I'm gonna let me just uh, lay my cards on the table here. The Symphony Number no. Two by Rachmaninoff is is a piece I've never really taken to, um, oh. and I and I wanted to hear because I think it's really it's big, kind of like a Mahler symphony, but not as it's not quite that long. It's about it comes out to about fifty minutes long. And it's very, very sweet sounding in the strings. Mm. And I think, for me, I've got to get myself out of this. This has to do with the time I was born, because when I was younger, you used to have records of like Mantovani string orchestra, and there was like this really (laughs) sickeningly sweet strings, you know, Mm. and it was a big sound at the time in the 60s, but um, it all comes from Rachmaninoff. And I really need to start hearing him as the the originator of that sound, because it's just it's just that it was overdone later. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think yeah.
0: you know, even in Rachmaninoff's piano works, right? It's really why I enjoy Trifonov's Daniel Trifonov's playing yeah. so much because it has to be played in the right way, right? Without the extra kind of sentimentality There's added lot, to it. There's could be lots
1: of sentimentality, yeah. In, yeah.
0: And but if it's done right, just like this work, it can be exhilarating and you know really moving.
1: Yeah. Okay, well, I I didn't really get exhilarated by this, but it's a pretty fantastic performance and recording, I could say, right at the beginning. The first thing we hear is um, the famous um, Prelude in C-sharp minor. This is a piano prelude, written in 1892, and this is orchestrated by Stokowski. Now, Stokowski, if you remember Fantasia, the first um, piece you hear in that movie is Box Toccata and Fugue in D minor, orchestrated for the orchestra by Stokowski. And what he does is he likes to have like different sections of the orchestra play the theme and it, and it kind of goes from there. And he relies a lot on the strings. And he does something similar here. The monstrous opening tones of the uh, piano, because it's really satisfying to play this on the piano because there are just these bass octaves that you just have to play. He's He writes like five Fs in the score, I seem to recall. <laughs> and it's just thunder. You know, it's, it's, it's this Hmm. kind of thunder that at the time only Russian pianists could produce because they had come up with this new technique for projecting the sound from the piano. And later on, like others, other pianists learned that, but they really had, uh, Russians really had the, um, that technique kind of like they had all these ballet secrets too, like that no one Hmm. else could do at the time. These huge leaps that they could do. And no, 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 they were really, uh, something else in the early 20th century. Anyway, those monstrous opening tones on the piano are really blown up by Stokowski here with glowering brass and a timpani roll, too. The theme is rendered in ghostly tremolos in the strings. This is really surprising, really, mm-hmm. that he would do that. Because if you think, it's a pia- on the piano, it would just be this solid piano sound. It's a feature of Stokowski's arrangement all the way to the end. I mean, you hear this uh, tremolo all the way through when the strings play. Um, brass play the bass parts, and sound quality, as has been the case with Chandos' DSD recordings of Symphony of London and John Wilson in the past, is spacious, dynamic, and glorious overall in its clarity and impact. It puts across the massive climaxes while sensitively capturing the pianissimi. We get the full range here. When you set your volume, yeah, you, you can easily set your volume for the whole recording via this piece right from the beginning, whatever sounds good on that thunderous hmm. opening, I don't think it gets louder than that, but there are going to be some really beautiful pianissimi coming up. Okay, the rest of the album is dedicated to the Symphony No. 2 in E minor, Opus 27, written in 1906 to 1907. We need to think about these days now. Rachmaninoff is still in Russia at this time, and this is before the Russian Revolution, when it became the Soviet Union in the 19... I don't remember the exact year. Jeez, I'm, it's in the 1910s, though. Anyway, this is before that. And then the work uh, draws on the full arsenal of... Uh, Rachmaninoff's technique. It synthesizes Russian symphonic trends as represented by Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, and his teacher, Sergei Taneyev, whose music is now being recorded. And we need to really hear more of it because he was another great composer, uh, Taneyev. We don't hear enough of him. And it combines these with the glamour of the Listian symphonic poem. And I hear a lot of that too. I actually think of the Listian symphonic poems, I like them, but they can get indulgent. And I kind of feel like this symphony can too. Although, it's very well structured despite its large size. Anyway, the first, speaking of large size, the first movement, a lot go, is 21 minutes long. Now, that's not really that long. There are other romantic works that have first movements uh, this long. I think of the Brahms Piano Concerti, but they seem short because they're just so great. Anyway, this, this doesn't, this is okay. The cello and basses play the opening conjunct theme. Conjunct meaning that the, um, there are no leaps in the melody. It's very close, the, the notes, with brass chords coming in afterwards. Uh, the strings play that sweet melody. There it is, right there. It's all nougaty and stretchy, and <laughs> it's made, giving me cavities <laughs> just, just just by listening to it. The opening's ponderous and slow. It really feels like a long, long build up, and all sounds are beautifully caught on the recording. Uh, the strings carry a great deal of the melodic material, and Rachmaninoff and John Wilson, the conductor, get an exceptionally sweet sound from them, which is characteristic of the work. We need to keep in mind when we hear this again, this is Rachmaninoff's sound, and it's a sound he loved. It got overused later, so when we hear it, we say, oh, it's so saccharine sounding, but no, it was kind of like how he heard it, and he was really the first to do this, and this would have wowed audiences at the time, and you know it did, because it lasted another 40 years. (laughs) Anyway. Hmm. There's also some very present brass used for harmony and punctuation, Uh, The work takes its time building up tension, and Wilson is in no hurry, keeping the rhythm taut while allowing the themes to be exposed at a leisurely tempo. Now, what's important here is he's going at this comfortable tempo, but the rhythm doesn't sag ever, and that's what really keeps tension Hmm. building. So this is a really well-conducted performance, as I sort of expected it would be. At around 445, we hear a precisely marked rhythm for the first time. With string melody. Now, when I say prosuccesi marked, I mean you can kind of feel the downbeat. You're not just you know you don't have to count it anymore. There's a Russian feel to this part rather than the Lisztian sound bath of the opening. And uh, climax is re- register strongly on the recording. There's a strong accent just after the sixth minute. At six twenty five, winds and strings share a question and response section of music. Uh, despite the length of the movement, motives and thematic material in general is all tied into a unit exceptionally well so that they all register well on repeat you remember them when you hear them and that has a lot to do with the conducting as well one example would be the russian theme heard again after the eight minute mark it sounds um sort of like a russian folk dance there's a pretty tchaikovskyan melody just after the 10 minute mark when i heard this i thought oh tchaikovsky Uh, that winds introduce and strings finish now he's not this isn't a pastiche but Rachmaninoff is sort of um using the, their styles to kind of um, sum up sort of Russian music up to the time when he's writing this. Sections of music melt into each other appealingly throughout the work, an effect well-portrayed by Wilson and the Symphony of London. By the 14th minute, we've melted into a more menacing section that climbs and builds tension as it does so. Now, this continues for some time. Rachmaninoff going to Malarian lengths, Gustav Mahler, and proportions to build up his material. It resolves slowly as a slow build to the final cadence with a crescendo peaking at a fairly modest forte. The second movement marked Allegro Molto, not a slow movement. This really does sound kind of like a, a Mahler sort of structure to me. Mm. And, and it's very romantic, as was Mahler's movement. I think actually Mahler had more modernist elements in his music, though, than Rachmaninoff did. Rushing strings open the movement very much in the Russian Troika ride tradition, if you remember Prokofiev's piece from Lieutenant Kijé, it's that sort of rhythm for the Troika ride. The conducting has good energy and rhythmic propulsion is well realized. At 108, a more romantic theme is heard in the strings. (laughs) And when I say romantic, uh, Rachmaninoff is the (laughs) king of romance, as we all know from the end of the the last movement of the second piano concerto. This sounds like that. It's very Mm -hmm. syrupy. Let's see, after this slow section, the more frenzied opening material comes back with even more energy at 2 minutes and 19 seconds. Now, I want to say, I'm saying that it's very syrupy and things, but Wilson doesn't make it sound schmaltzy, and that could easily happen. Um, so he's, he's keeping the rhythms taut, keeping the music moving, and not lingering on this in this, this kind of sickening way that some conductors of the past have done. We'll remain nameless. This fades into a decrescendo and we get frenzied, bowed music at around the 3 minute and 8 second mark. Wilson keeps all the rhythms taut, I keep saying this, even when the beats become more spread out. I like the sound of the famous brass chords at 4.23, creamy and sounding like they're coming from a distance. There's an awesome fortissimo at 5.13 as the music regains energy. Uh, The percussion impacts powerfully on the recording. At 5.54, gentle, chiming percussion entered the score, giving the music a wintry feel. A more syrupy string theme returns at 6.30. Just before the end, we hear a beautiful brass chorale. The sound is full-bodied and rich. The scurrying strings bring the movement to a quiet end. I'm looking at all my writing here, and I've written the word taught, T-A-U-T, as taught, like he taught a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if there's check doing that. I don't Could know. Be. I have this thing where I like to, like, I like words that are different from each other. You know, they're, kind of, they're spelled differently, but right. they're pronounced the same. And ever since college, we, we would always kind of write these words, like the way they weren't supposed to be written. And now I think it's become a habit. <laughs> I just write the word the opposite way. Okay. Track three, Adagio. We've heard so much syrupy string playing in this work. And now we're in the center of the beehive here, as far as the, the honey goes. Uh, we have a movement dedicated specifically to that type of sound. This starts out with the strings, but the clarinet comes in with a main theme. And the booklet note mentions that uh, this the clarinet theme that we hear has apparently acted as the seed for a lot of popular songs, including Bob Crew and Bob Gaudio's 1967 hit, Can't Take My Eyes Off You, yeah. originally released by Frankie Valli. You heard that yeah. contour
0: in there? Oh, uh, I've, I've heard that mentioned as one of the inspired pieces, yeah.
1: So I was listening to the melody. I'm like, okay, it's not the same melody. But I think the the shape somehow is similar because there are certain mm. contours yes. of the melody that I, that I kind of identified as, oh, yeah, they, that could be that. I wouldn't have made the connection had I not read it in the notes, though, I have to say. Although the string section of the melody at the 3 minute and 17 second mark does have a familiar contour from the song. So listen to that. and see, see if you can hear it. Uh, the clarinet plays a big role in this movement, and is back in the fourth minute in the spotlight. Strings take over again and build up tension in the fifth minute, playing fragments of the theme in the process. I think one of the things about this piece that bothers me is that he re- Rahmanov relies so heavily on the strings. And it's the 20th century, you want to hear more brass, more winds. But then again, he wants that sweet string sound, so that's why he does it. Tension gradually releases with a decrescendo and we get a full ending to the section at 7.30. There's a pause, then a sweet solo violin melody takes the lead, passing the melody to various solo instruments. This section has a more personal feel as a result. The opening melody unwinds into the 14th and final minute at a leisurely, though always rhythmically taut, pace. The movement ends quietly. You gotta remember too, I'm someone who grew up with distorted guitars. That was like the sound. <laughs> and when you hear that sweet violin melody, that's like the opposite of a distorted guitar. You know? mm. So I think I never really completely got over that. Okay, the fourth movement, Allegro Vivace, starts with lively material in the strings. And this is really the movement where he ties everything together. There's a second theme, then the first is heard again, always with the requisite sense of excitement in the playing. At 3.05, there's yet another romantic syrupy string theme. Uh, this this <laughs> symphony is loaded with them. It's clearly a sound and melodic shape Rachmaninoff loved. Time is harmonically stretched out in this work, and this theme winds itself into the sixth minute, where it dissolves for 30 seconds into a cadence. Then at 6.41, the rhythm quickens, and we hear elements of the opening theme. By the ninth minute, the material is at full tilt with cymbal splashes and timpani hits, adding accents. The music quickly decrescendos, bringing the harmony to a more mysterious place. The brass pick up the theme, and sound chords with a satisfyingly burnished glow. Rushing strings return, and there's a prolonged buildup of tension, sometimes broken up uh, as at the 11 minute and 40 second mark, only to resume again. At 12.33, there's a gorgeous transition from a tension building run to the romantic string theme, given extra glow by brass chords big boned cadential material at the end, complete with timpani to give the ending a big impact and bring the audience to its feet. It almost brought me to mine. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> it is a big ending. Okay, so while I've never been a big fan of this particular symphony because he uses strings a lot and to exceptionally sweet effect, this is a sumptuously scored work and it's brilliantly captured on the recording. Uh, John Wilson, as I expected, uh, manages to keep all of the long-breathed melodies taught Again, I've spelled it wrong. <laughs> I did that. Okay, and in rhythmic proportion to each other, bringing out motivic relationships clearly. It's as good a recording as you'll ever hear of this work, and I think is good a performance as well. And it's done without cuts to the score, which sometimes occur. Rachmaninoff actually sanctioned them, but um, I'm I'm a bit of a purist. I want to hear the whole score. Okay, even in opera, I want to hear all the spoken parts. <laughs> The performance and recording are both a major wow, all climaxes registering fully in timing and power. So all that pacing that Wilson does really pays off when the climaxes arrive. You really do feel them. Uh, it's all just so beautifully timed and put together. It's really a recording you can't miss if you like the work. It makes me want to revisit it. I mean, this is another one I'll listen to again. I don't know when. I think I'm going to need some time. Just to hear the glorious sound of the recording, and try to get some of those themes more deeply into my ear. You can hear the connections b- between motifs very clearly on this recording due to the pacing and the, the beautiful pacing that leads to those powerful climaxes. So yeah, highly recommend it here.
0: I'm a big fan of all of Rachmaninoff's orchestra works, this one mm.
1: included. So I, maybe I, I like the piano controls, but that's because they have a piano in them, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I have a few different recordings of this. One I really like, I think it's by the Russian National Philharmonic actually. And I have a couple other ones I don't like as much, but I really enjoyed this interpretation and the performance and the recording. Uh, There's detailed string textures. I like that sound. The low brass is really impressive. I liked the kind of restrained phrasing on the sweeping sections of strings so it doesn't become too schmaltzy (laughs) as you said that's your new york vocabulary word out there schmaltz Schmaltz. Uh, (laughs) the explosive timpani hits are cool I thought it was expressive without being indulgent.
1: That's important to make this work, you know, this piece work, yeah.
0: A warm sound quality through all the movements. The second movement has a really nice intense sense of motion to it. I like the lightness of the sweeping theme, uh, the furious and kind of fleet crescendos, and then more of that wide brass. Uh, Yeah, so overall. I thought it was enthralling interpretation and performance that doesn't indulge too much. But yeah, I guess taught is a a good word and it gets all measured out and satisfyingly drawn to a conclusion. And you you feel that everything was, you know, perfectly in balance with it. And this recording just has great sonics. Uh, You can bathe in the sound there, too. So, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot.
1: I personally think this is probably the recording to have. Of this work, at least among mm. certainly modern recordings. I've never heard of a better one, no. but you know, I just, um, you know, I guess I wouldn't have, <laughs> I didn't hear all that many of them really. <laughs> all right. Finally, the, our last classical album of the night is one that I thought was really special. I was really yeah. looking forward to this, this and it fun. paid off. Uh, the composer is Pierre Sankan. His year is 1916, died in 2008. Not all that long ago, really. Mm. Now Pierre Sankan, a musical tribute. This features uh, one of our favorite pianists, Jean Flam Bavouzet, mm. and uh, Adam Walker on the flute for the uh, famous flute sonatine. We'll get to that. And it's played by, all played by the BBC Philharmonic and Jan pascal Tortellier. This is on the Chandos label, Chandos, and it's not an SACD, which is kind of sad. I would have <laughs> liked if it were. And I have to say, it's about time an album of Pierre Sancan's music came out, and yeah. it's even better that such heavy hitters are performing it on this album. Sankan was a composer who was born a little too late in a century of huge upheavals. Um, He nevertheless accompanied a place at the heart of the history of French music in the second half of the 20th century as a composer, pianist, teacher, and an extremely endearing personality by all accounts. So he's kind of like the uh, 20th century Haydn in that way, where Mm. everybody just liked him. It shows in his music too, as it shows in Haydn's music. This is all really friendly music just waiting to be discovered and loved I think. You have to keep in mind Sankhan was born in 1916 the same year as Henri Dutilleux who's a very different composer. Mm. I mean he's very much in that uh, 20th century sort of um sound yeah. world, you know. I get a feeling, you know, reading
0: about him, he's very well known in France but not so much outside. Yeah. And, the overwhelming kind of theme other than the um, string piece here is that of playfulness and fun, yeah. and, which doesn't feature too much in 20th century. I know, music. Right? So he might've just been, uh, you know, too kind of enjoyable for some of the music that he was, uh, his contemporaries were doing.
1: Yeah. 20th century French composers, there, there are two real schools as far as I can see. There are the, uh, the real, uh, uh, modernists or post-war modernists like mm. Pierre Boulez and you know the, the serialists and things like that Henri Dutilleux would be like a post you know a, a post-war modernist and then there are the really light composers like Jean-Michel Damas or Jean Francais and I think um, Sankan isn't quite as light as those mm. two he's, he's playful
0: know. and bombastic at the same time yeah so. and he,
1: there's a bit of um it's it's not played only for pleasure. There's a little bit more to the music yeah. than that. Okay, so I'll try to uncover that a little bit in what I say about these uh, works. Um, He was successful as a composer in his early days, but became a pianist because it was steadier work and paid the bills. So sounds like my life, <laughs> although I didn't become a pianist. It became something totally non-musical. Also, Bavuzet assumed he stopped composition because of the post-war avant-garde like Messiaen, Dutille, and Boulez. Um, which confronted him with the limits of his development as a composer. He suffered from nerves, so he didn't want to play yeah. the piano live all the time, and later became a teacher at the Paris Conservatoire, and he um, devised a method. This is really interesting. This is what he's really most remembered for among musicians. He devised a method to help students cope with the growing demands placed on professional pianists. Of course, in the 20th century, some of the, some of the piano scores that were written were, were extremely demanding. Jean-Aflin Bavouzet was one of his students and mm. credits him as changing his life by enabling uh-huh. him to transition from the state of being a gifted pianist to that of being a professional one. Huh. It's an interesting distinction. Okay, there's a good chance that most of us know one uh, uh, Sankan piece. His Sonatine for flute and piano is the only work of his regularly performed today. And it's on almost every um, flute and piano album, right. especially of French music. And if you have a, uh, an album of... Uh, French flute and piano music, there's a good chance this piece is on it. It's so French and dreamy out of yeah. it, all of these, yeah. It is included on this album, too. We hear Adam Walker play it with jean Flam Bavouzet. But finally, we have much more besides and uh, in all different uh, genres. Uh, the booklet notes, by the way, include appreciations by both Bavouzet and Tortelier, and a warmly written and well worth reading. They have little anecdotes about Sankan, what he was like, what he did, these sorts of things. The first um, track is called, (laughs) appropriately enough, Overture Joyeuse, Joyous Overture, and what it is, is a joyous overture, it's it's not lying, (laughs) it's right right there. It's just over five minutes long, and it's in a rather light style. It's joyous in the way an Offenbach aria is joyful, in a champagne-like way. There are some harmonic and melodic surprises in the score. It's not quite straightforward. It's sort of a hybrid of the earlier Romantic era and the modernist one that Mm. uh, Sankan was was in at the time and just coming out of, really. The performance is full of enthusiastic energy, and the bass end, with its constant bass drum and cymbal crashes, registers well. There's some pretty orchestration after 2.16 with low whining reed instruments and sparkling light metal percussion. I can even detect a bit of Gershwinian jazziness in it at one point in the second minute. It's a pleasing curtain raiser complete with a raucous ending and a clever final cadence after an unexpected pause. Next is the uh, I guess the center point of this whole album the Piano Concerto of 1955. It's certainly the longest work on the album it's about a half an hour. It was written by Sankan for him for him to play himself. It includes a technique that Sankan was particularly known for, one of which was his uh, repeated notes. And you're going to hear repeated notes all over the piano pieces on this because it was one of Sankan's specialties as far as his technique when he liked to show it off. At just over 20 minutes, this is the major work of the album. It starts the first movement, modere. It starts rather more seriously, uh, certainly more seriously than the overture that we just heard. With brooding low strings. It's a long movement at 15 minutes. After the brooding opening a crashing lively theme is heard, then back to a string theme with some warmly gorgeous harmony. The expositions of themes takes its time, but they're all so beautifully orchestrated. There's a crescendo building up tension that isn't quite released, despite the chords of tension really being hammered on. The piano finally makes its entry at 239. That's two and a half minutes into the piece with bold octaves. We hear some sparkling trills in the following quieter passage in the third minute. The piano has some compelling harmonies in the fourth minute, sounding like he's picked up some post-war harmony here. There's a rushing theme that appears in the fifth minute in the strings and drives the movement for a while. And I should mention that the sound of the orchestra and piano is a bit distant on the recording. Crashing sonorities register well, and I'm guessing that's probably the reason for the distance, but on the piano's louder passages one doesn't get a three-dimensional sense of the instrument, there's a pause in the set. Okay, so the sounds I don't know. It's a little bit two-dimensional mm. on the recording. And uh, after the Rachmaninoff, I got to say this is a little bit of a, a letdown by by the by Chandos here because that one was so vivid. Anyway, there's a pause in the seventh minute that actually sounds like the end of the movement, but the music resumes on dramatic romantic passages after that. A lot of tricks in this um in this movement. At eight thirty-eight. The uh, section after the pause comes to an end via a natural fade and the piano gets a broken music box type of solo with some colorful extra notes thrown in. This develops over time into a crescendoing, tension building passage in the orchestra with piano playing figures over it. At 11 minutes and 10 seconds the crescendo bursts and the piano starts some racing figuration. The piano and orchestra now seem at odds with each other, but come into sync towards the end of the 11th minute as the piano answers the orchestra's gestures. At 12.30, there's a piano cadenza featuring rapid, rattling trills in the high end and some rapid scales played with gossamer touch. It catches the ear." Um, Bavuzet seems to be um playing at an even higher level than we normally hear him at. He seems like he's really engaged by this music and hmm. it, it really, in, it's really endearing to him. He's putting a lot across. The cadenza ends with some questioning chords, which break into circling arpeggio figuration and a repeated note and an octave run to the bass end. The orchestra comes in with explosive big-boned gestures to bring the movement to a majestic ending. There's a lot of material to hear in this movement. It invites repeated listening. I'm sure everything I just told you isn't going to give you any kind of an idea what you're going to hear because <laughs> there's a lot to hear. And this is a, a movement that's going to invite repeated listenings because there's just so many de- much detail and so many different sections that just come in by surprise that uh, it's going to be well worth hearing. The ending makes the movement sound like an independent piece in itself. Uh, The second movement, Andante, has gentle orchestration marked with light bell-like percussion and a high flute or piccolo. I can't really tell. Uh, The piano comes in playing a melody accompanied by repeated quarter note chords. The movement is less than half as long as the previous movement. And the orchestration and harmony in the strings is mirage-like, not quite coming into focus. The piano is the main focus of the movement. The orchestra will set background textures for the piano to play over. The middle section builds tension via a crescendo, which evaporates as the opening gentle theme comes back in the piano. Lovely touch by the orchestra at the ending, too. So I kind of feel like this is like the piano playing in front of a like a, a foggy background, let's say. Kind of nice. Third movement, Allegro Vivo. This bursts out with a bass drum and bell-like percussion at the beginning with the energy of the uh, Ravel piano concerto in G if major, if you know that one. It's it's in G, anyway. Uh, if you know that one, it just really starts racing, and this one does too. The piano has some cheerful rapid scalar material to play. There's some smile-inducing brass glissandos placed in the foreground <laughs> when they appear. <laughs> really funny, actually. Meanwhile, the flutes and other woodwinds imitate and play off the piano's line. Uh, Bavoze really is magnificent here. His affection for the piece and its composer is palpable. He's constantly playing at high speed in this movement, and his energy never flags. At the four-minute mark, the orchestra takes over the theme with upward brass glissandos erupting out of the texture like streamers at a party. There's a lot of interest in the orchestral color here along with the piano. Brass get a lot to do. At 5.23, the tempo finally slows down, and quite a bit. A darkness has crept into this irrepressibly happy movement, but it doesn't last long, lifting itself out and up to a majestic theme. In the orchestra with many bass drum and percussion crashes. The piano gets a brief cadenza that brings it into its low bass end. The Mm. orchestra responds with a quiet line that the piano picks up and extends for an ending, which comes as rather a surprise. It's great to have a recording of this work. I was really glad to hear it. The next work is a symphony for string orchestra. It's shorter than the piano concerto and it's full of, according to the booklet note, joviality, mischief, and even humor except for a slow movement of touching depth. And those are Jean-Pascal Tortelier's words, the conductor. The first movement, marked Allegro Vivo, has a a sawing opening by the low strings, with the violins playing the raucous theme. The movement is high energy and rather brief at 4 minutes, 9 seconds, and continues as rewritings of the opening, developing from those rhythms and patterns. There are inventive moments, as when the melody is heard in the middle voices during a lull in the second minute, the theme is boisterous by the third minute, after which it slows down as though a brake is slowly being pressed, and gets to a suitable and still quick speed, with energy driving it to the end on several repeated chords. The second movement, Andante, has a poignancy, as pa- Tortelier mentioned. Uh, it's quietly played, and the accompaniment comes across with great atmosphere. The movement of themes and accompaniment against each other is pleasing to the ear, textures subtly change throughout the movement, and at the end of this 3 minute and 40 second movement, or, or at this point, the solo cello actually sounds like a reed instrument with low bass pizzicati having a percussive feel. Third movement, Finale presto. This movement picks up the pizzicati and places them in the high end of the violins with a more rapid tempo. This acts as accompaniment to the bowed themes, all brief and jumpy. At the one minute mark, we get a longer legato line in the violins and violas, while the cellos and basses play briefer, more percussive material. Uh, this reverses rather pleasingly sometime at around 1.40. The piece seems to have reached the end by 2.50, but then an eerie rising set of lines starts up and the piece ends on a surprising quiet chord. Track eight is a piece called Commedia dell'arte from 1952. It's the overture to this work. Rushing material in the strings opens this movement and breathly, whistling harsh winds play out. The orchestra continues on as though we're caught in a whirlwind, with sounds like objects spinning around us. At one o seven a hyperactive theme with glissandos in the brass is heard. There are comic changes of tempo and orchestration, the texture becoming spacious one moment, saturated the next. We reach a respite with a gliding theme at one forty five or so. Surprising harsh sounds peek out of the texture at times. By the beginning of the third minute, we're hearing quiet, scurrying string lines, again with wise-guy outbursts from the occasional wind instrument. This is another work with what sounds like a final cadence followed by comic outbursts from brass and winds. Another more emphatic cadence ends the work. Okay, tracks 9 through 11, the famous Sonatine for Flute and Piano from 1946. It's a set work for instrumental classes and was written for a competition at the Paris Conservatoire. This is the uh, only chamber work on the album, too. And Adam Walker is the flautist on this piece. The first movement, Moderato, starts in a beautiful pastoral style with light playing by Bavuze on the piano, complementing the flute's light sound beautifully. This movement really moves at a fast pace. The piano has a lot of Sankan's beloved repeated notes. The rhythm is vibrantly adhered to and in fact comes into high relief at this fast tempo, making the movement dance. Great athleticism is shown by both players. You can hear that this would be a competition piece. The movement ends and the track continues with a piano line that sets up the slow movement. The flute comes in with a statement at the end that leads into the second movement and continues the theme it started on track um, 10. This is a through composed work, even though it's kind of separated into three sections. So the flute uh, is playing its theme. The piano settles into a slow arpeggiated pattern. A sudden crescendo makes the passage at the beginning of the first minute register dramatically. Then the music falls back to the gentler opening theme. The flute gets a bit of a cadenza at the end of the movement when it gets up into its high end, playing dramatically, sounding beautifully full-toned in its lower end. The figuration speeds up to lead into the third movement, anime. The piano starts this part, picking up the flute's line from the previous movement. There's some flutter-tonguing sound in the flute's tone in the first minute. Uh, the movement consists highly of repeated notes on both piano and flute pretty piano figuration towards the end and after which the flute solo plays a line leading to the end the piano joins in for the last chords and the program concludes with four encores that san wrote for himself to play on solo piano track 12 is the toccata for piano from 1943. this has a manically racing tempo in the opening the piano is lightly played rapidly repeating chord patterns split between both hands. Bavuzet gets a full-bodied sound in the bass that registers enough to be understood, but the recording lacks resonance. I really wish it was a little closer, and we could have used more of it. The recording is very dry. Uh, the brilliant performance is perfectly audible, though. The machine rhythm breaks up as tension-building patterns come in after one thirty. The perpetual motion patterns are back by the end, and the piece ends excitingly. It's a great performance by Bavuzet. Track 13 is a Caprice Romantique for the left hand alone for piano. Now, these kind of pieces were pretty um, common at the time, people coming back from the war with only one arm, but this was written for Sankan himself to play. I guess he wanted to sell it too. Anyway, it's a more romantic mode with lots of space and transparency in the material. The occasional harmonic twist gives away that this isn't written in the 19th century. At 133, a new section begins with questioning, wandering lines. The lines eventually crash into the deep bass end of the piano. More emphatic lines emerge from this, tempered by rubato. Listening to this performance, it's amazing to think it's only for the yeah. left hand. <laughs> yeah, it sounds full body. And I've heard other left hand pieces, including the Ravel hmm. piano concert for the left hand. You can kind of tell it's for the left hand, even though there are like tricks to make it sound like it's for two hands. But this is really an incredible effect in this particular piece yeah the illusion of two hands is well caught in the writing Uh, at 509 an emphatic percussive sound takes us away from the romantique element and the piece ends on a heavy cadence with a deep bass note track 14 boite a musique which means the music box and you'll hear why as soon as it starts it has a pretty music box melody in the very high end of the piano played with appropriately mechanical rhythm by bavuzet it's short at 158. Uh, at 34 seconds, it changes into a mid tempo waltz. There's a lightly jarring note in the cadential chord at 101. The opening melody comes back, slower now, as the music box is winding down. Some odd harmonies are introduced, like the music box is breaking down. And Bavose produces the slowing of the music box beautifully. Apparently, it's rapidly wound up again because the very last passage is played at full speed. Bavuzet in the notes mentions that um, Sankhan had Alzheimer's disease at the end of his life. And Bavuzet himself says that when he plays this piece, he thinks of Sankhan's brain breaking down at the point of the slowing of the music box, which adds oh. kind of a poignancy to this uh, piece, which is really very playful. I mean, I don't think it, mm-hmm. you know, that heaviness is in there, but Bavuzet himself uh, thinks about it, he said. Anyway, the 15th track and final track is Mouvement for Piano marked anime. It's an extremely rapid takkata-like piece with amazingly taken repeated notes. Uh, The tempo is breathless. At one minute and 10 seconds, there's a change to more fluid material, less block-like. The opening material returns at the end and a rush up the keyboard leads to the final note, a very exciting way to end the program. And that's it. I'm glad I finally got to hear so much of Sankan's music. It was well worth it. As I said, the centerpiece is clearly the 28-minute piano concerto, which contains a lot of ideas in it. You can spend days just listening to that over and over again and uh, finding new things in it, particularly in the first movement. Um, listeners, of course, will gravitate to the sonatine for flute and piano, but all of this is an enjoyable, light, and often clever discovery. Bavose's playing is brilliant throughout. He's really playing like over and above what his normal, very high level. His affection for the composer and his music is palpable. Adam Walker is brilliant in the flute sonatine, and the BBC orchestra conducted by Jan Pascal Tortelier, play brilliantly and don't allow the energetic tempos to slacken. In fact, all of the performances on this album were exceptionally vivid rhythmically. My only qualm is the rather two-dimensional sound quality throughout. There are bursts of bass that enter the room, but most of the sound stays within the confines of the speakers, and the piano sound lacks resonance, but has plenty of detail. Nevertheless, this is now But I encourage everyone to hear, and this music's time has come. It should be better known, So, and I'm sure that everybody who hears it will enjoy the music.
0: Salkon's music's got a lot of humor and playfulness in it. Those trombone glisses mm. in multiple uh, pieces, yeah, are just especially good the piano crescendos, they just come out yeah. like that. Yeah, I really enjoyed the overtures a lot, especially the uh, comedy one. It has a real circus type atmosphere to it. You can almost imagine arte, clowns yeah. dancing out. Mm. That said, it's all balanced with a nice sense of timbres and a full use of all the tones in the orchestra. I really enjoyed also the piano and flute concertos and the flute. No one writes for the flute like the French do. And this has all that kind of dreaminess and rich atmosphere. And yeah, I enjoyed all of the music on this recording. The sound, as you say, could have been a little bit more multidimensional, but it's made up for by the playing and Mm, Balazsé and Walker shine as they always do. So excellent performances, very interesting and enjoyable music as well okay over to the jazz side and well the theme is randomness (laughs) i just uh, had some recordings i wanted to get out that don't have anything in common with them do a little bit of an international tour as always and we're going to start out on the uk ubuntu label co-founded by the great trumpeter quentin collins who we heard not too uh, long ago on the podcast and uh, five-way split Uh, his current group great trumpeter and uh, doing nice things uh, with recording new music there on Ubuntu label and so we're gonna get an Israeli guitarist so we've got an Israeli guitarist on a UK label talked about by two Americans in Japan can't get much more of a mix-up than that
2: yeah
0: Uh, and this is Gur Laraz's new recording squiggles came out May 19th this is his debut on Ubuntu and I believe his third album as a leader he was born in Tel Aviv Israel in 1988 took up the guitar when he was nine years old and he started playing jazz music he majored in jazz at the Thelma Yellen High School which I guess is a big music school for youngsters there and he spent four years of that time studying under jazz guitar master Ofer Ganor and then he also spent some time in new york studying under the great peter bernstein and now he resides in berlin so an international career there and he says of this recording that the songs take inspiration from their israeli roots as well as from the tradition of soul and blues playing that informs jazz music with an aesthetic focus on exploring the canonical organ guitar combos of the 60s, such as Wes Montgomery, Melvin Rye, Grant Green, and Larry Young. He's got a couple of Israeli compatriots here. So we've got Laraz on guitar, Tal Balshai on organ, and Omri Gondor on drums. Let's jump right in with Laraz's original composition, A Straight Story. Larez starts this one out with a pickup line into a fun repeating riffy kind of bluesy melody. The tune's an A-A-B-A 32 measure tune. A nice unexpected chord in the third measure of this A section gets you right away, and Bauschai has a cool chugging walk on the organ bass going, Uh, but listen to the nice change up on the B section here in the organ part to bass intervals and the little glisses in the right hand. Uh, Larez got a warm clean and upfront guitar tone here and all throughout the recording. Uh, He comes out with a break into the solo from the melody. He plays nice bluesy licks with a lot of snap in his lines. There's a really cool hesitated line in there that Balshai and Gondor respond to instantly. Nice interplay in this trio. And Balshai solos next, and I really like the gritty sound of the <laughs> organ tone on here. And he's going to mix those tones up throughout this album. It's also got a clean attack with nice melodic ideas, some speedy lines, and a good bluesy climax to the solo. Luraz returns for some more bluesy soloing before they join up with the melody again on the B section. And through the final A with a little slowdown into some final guitar licks before the last chord. It's good fun. And you'll notice right away from the start, there's a real close-up sound quality to the recording. Uh, however, it does have a lot of panning to it. Uh, the guitar is dead center and drums are panned far to the right and organ to the left. So you feel like you're <laughs> standing in the room, turning your head to uh, notice each player. <laughs> Track two, also by L'Raz Noah, N-O-A this one has an interesting structure interesting switch-ups and a melancholy melody it starts out in tempo but with no drums lerai playing a twelve measure section of the melody over organ chords then Balshai takes over for an organ section that gets a swing feel for six measures with a measure of break at the end for Lara's to pick up into the first melody section again now with a kind of even latin type beat feel the swinging organ section comes again and then a break into loraz's solo to keep the latin feel going and he plays melodic mostly fluid phrases with some nice pearly sounding notes Towards the end, it switches up to a swing feel for a bit, and back to the Latin beat for Balshai's solo, and Gondor has some extra tappy drum ideas underneath that. They switch it up to swing for the end of the organ solo, and then they take it through both melody sections again, and it ends with a final phrase from the first section into a few final tasty licks from Laraz. Track 3, also by Laraz. Coco Loco, and this is a fun one, and loco, yes, it will drive you a little loco to figure (laughs) out the rhythms here. (laughs) So it starts out with a four-measure intro of syncopated descending guitar figures, and they're in a 6-8 meter. Then the melody starts, now it's an A-A-B-A form, but it's quite interesting. The A section has stop time under the guitar licks for the first four measures but they alternate between 4-beat and 3-beat measures. So is it really uh, unusual. It sounds natural, but if you try to figure out what's going on, you'll say, wait, where'd those beats go? Um, and then for the rest of the A, the last four bars, it, it just gets swinging. And then the B section is straight ahead 4-4. Four, four. Loraz has some neat double stops there that go into fuller chords with some final cool interval figures that are synced up with the organ. And then the final A section has an extra four measures tagged on at the end with a break into the guitar solo. And the solo just stays in straight 4 4. Loraz got snappy and bluesy lines in his solo and an extra break in uh, mid solo there just to. Uh, Break it up a bit. Clean ride cymbals mark out the swing from Gondor, and then Balshai modulates some licks around in his solo that follows to get going and keeps uh, to a kind of clean one-handed line type of playing. Gondor gets the solo for some sections, trading with chords from the organ and guitar, and they take another run through the melody with a nice extended coda into a 6-8 outro like the intro. And then Laraz has a really nice final rising chord line. That reminded me of a guitarist I like a lot named Jimmy Ponder, who's not too well known, but uh, that final lick is something that uh, stylized uh, from my memories of him. Track 4 is another Loraz original tune for MC. This one has kind of a bossa feel to it with a clicky beat. Loraz takes the melody on guitar. It has an interesting structure of a 17 measure melody section, then an eight-measure middle section, and then the first section again. There are syncopated chords. The guitar hits together with the organ near the end of that section. that give it some extra push. Laraz mixes up some double-time licks in this solo, and some interesting rhythmic phrasing as well, and Balshai gets a clean organ tone on his solo on this one, working in the middle register ending up in some tense chords. They take it through the melody sections once more to finish it out. Track 5, Loraz's Adrift. This is a speedy swinging one, and Gondor gets it going with eight measures of drum solo, Uh, another uniquely structured melody here. There's a little syncopated riff for two measures after the drum opening, then an eight measure kind of A section, that riff again, and a second repeat, another riff into a 16 measure contrasting section, and then directly into the A section with no riff, but a riff at the end that works as a solo break, so it has these like little kind of uh, bookend riffs in spots. Anyway, Lorez is often running with speedy lines on this solo, sticking on some longer notes along the way, working down into the lower register. A riff break again switches things over to Bauschai, who gets soloing with repeated note and interval ideas into some more zippy ideas with a lot of fun descending figures working to a percussive finish. And Gondor gets a drum solo, mixing up a lot of ideas all around the kit. The others join in uh, from the riff, and then 16 measure section uh, through to the end uh, to finish it up. Track 6, another Bauschai original, The Child in You, it's a happy sounding tune in 6-8. There's an intro with a nice repeating syncopated guitar and organ bass riff for four measures. Bauschai takes the melody. Check out the gritty organ tone here. I really like it. Uh, It's got an eight measure section, then a four measure interlude of pearly ringing guitar notes, and a final six measure organ melody section. Bauschai continues on with a solo. He plays some really fun rhythmic licks between nice melodic ideas. It really spins off a repeated and sped up lick. Loraz comes in to trade some phrases with him. With Tasty Double Stops, they pick up the melody from the ringing guitar four-measure section into the final organ line and connect it to an outro of the riff from the intro, while Balshai has uh, really interesting descending organ lines. It's kind of cute and smiley uh, <laughs> altogether. Track 7, another Loraz original, Zaterem. This one starts out with a cool rubato organ intro from Bauschai with a kind of uh, Leslie speaker effects going on. Laraz and Gondor enter in tempo with the slow ballad melody, and Laraz sounds great at this slow tempo with his very clean tone, articulation, and squeezing all all the juice in those little phrases. The melody is a kind of 12 measure phrase, and then the Raz works off from it to take two rounds of improvisation. Balshai mixes up long chords and then choppier figures, and Gondor has a light cymbal beat and other textures and hits underneath. The Raz gets more liquid, kind of lines as he goes on here, and he continues on connecting to a final melody run with some shimmering chords added and some final licks to an unexpected final minor chord, and he has some really good bluesy bends in there as well. The title track 8, Laraz's original as well, Squiggles! Hmm. It's a bluesy shuffle feel for a 32 measure AABA tune with some cool chord changes. The B section contrasts nicely with a little minor guitar lick, alternating with thick guitar chords, and a little break for a guitar pickup lick into the final section. Laraz continues on soloing, over Bauschai's walking bass lines. He's sounding a lot more fluid here now, Uh, some low register licks and good melodic connection. Bauschai's got an organ solo on this one too, starting with some happy bouncy licks and building up some harmonic tension over the B section working into more bluesy ideas and a nice gliss into some chords. Guitar and organ trade fours with Gondor for the A sections and then return to the melody for the B and final A with a few final phrase repeats to the end.
1: Yeah, that's something I noticed too that the guitar kind of like, he he seems to get more like inspired as the album goes on. You know, That's that's what I feel. Yeah.
0: I feel like um, his uh, phrasing was a neck for his ideas in the first couple tracks like he was getting kind of stuck up on what he wanted to do but as each tune goes on things kind of like smooth out and his ideas kind of just uh, come more freely right and i don't know if that's the order that the tracks were recorded it's just the impression i got
1: yeah well you got it too so there you go go. Mm.
0: (laughs) well track nine's an original by Balshai called journey to the unknown and it starts out with a fittingly mysterious mood an eight measure intro with a soft organ bass ostinato, kind of a light rock beat from Gondor and little figures and interval ideas on top from Laraz's guitar. Baal Shai takes the 16 measure minor melody on organ and Laraz plays syncopated backing chords. The melody has some fun harmonic twists on the way and some rhythmic syncopated rising lines from the 13th measure. They go around twice and the Raz is up for a turn at it with some synced up rhythmic lines with the others and a longer final held a note. Back to another round from Bauschai with some triplet figures in the final measures this time into an improvised solo. He keeps the mysterious mood with smooth flowing lines and some speedy undulating kind of lines as well, and then he gets more animated and choppy for a climax. The rest follows, starting with tasty bluesy licks and now more fluid lines and he's sounding better and better as the recording goes on, I thought, and he finishes up getting back to the melody idea and then Balshai gets another final melody run on the organ to some final vamping and guitar and organ crazy licks that come along as it fades out. I thought it's a in- thoroughly enjoyable guitar organ trio recording. It draws on and reminds you of 60s organ trios. but. With all original compositions, it has a freshness to the program. The tunes have catchy melodies and unique atmospheres with different rhythmic flows. And upon a close listen, they reveal some unique structures and a few tricky meter switch-ups. has got a warm, upfront and clean guitar tone, not hiding in any kind of reverb or effect. Oh, yeah. He can get different sound qualities, sometimes with pearly notes. His solos are melodic little bluesy touches and a mix in of double stops and thick chord ideas sometimes his phrasing seems to become more flowing and fluid as the recording unfolds Balshai's organ work sounds great here with a nice variety of bass lines interesting solos and what i liked best a variety of tones from clean and percussive to a bit gritty and they all suit the atmosphere for each song well And Gondor's a good match on the drums, fitting in with subtle drumming in soft passages, good grooves in different feels, and some solo spots where he mixes things up nicely. The recording sounds good. It's up front and natural sounding. As I said, the organ is panned left and drums to the right. So I found it more enjoyable to listen to with speakers rather than headphones where both Mm -hmm. ears hear a kind of natural
1: mix of the positions of the instruments. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Oh, by the way, you didn't mention that the, the last track of the album fades out. Mm-hmm. So, something i don't approve yeah. <laughs> as we all know from a jazz track right. I, and it was really going there was some good stuff being played there and then it, tried, it faded yeah. out i was like no no <laughs> just keep going right. anyway on this album yeah i enjoyed the organ playing especially all the way through he was he had like really great ideas good presence good sounds yeah i, I really enjoyed that and as you mentioned i thought the uh the, the guitar i liked too but i felt like he kind of like warmed up as the, uh, as the album went on. Uh, and he's fine throughout, you know, really right from the beginning. But something more is coming out of him by the mm. end. Fluidity. Um, yeah, the track I liked best was The Child and You with its odd organ sound and interesting solo yeah. ideas on the guitar. Journey to the Unknown had an appealing groove and theme and kept me interested. Reminded me of The Doors or something like yeah, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of I think like, that's a good yeah. comparison. I didn't really made that connection. It's like, yeah. Oh, but yeah, the 1960s. Anyway, it's a good album. Uh, pleasant, good soloing. And I thought, especially from the organ, I liked his, I just liked the organ anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I liked all of his sounds too. It was pretty, he was pretty creative with those as well as his playing.
0: I can hardly pass up on organ trio <laughs> recordings. Yeah, especially I noticed. When kind of interesting,
1: yeah. <laughs> We've heard a lot of them this year, but I don't get tired of them either. No, we me both either. really like them a lot.
0: All right, we're going to go from organ trio to piano trio, and uh, we're going to, Cross the Atlantic and move further south to Argentina. And now remember, you're going to have heard this first on the Adult Music Podcast. Mm. And I came across this recording and didn't know anything about it, but I liked what I heard. So then when I decided we would uh, feature it, you know, I investigated it a little bit and I got a few surprises. Uh, This is Escenarios. It's on the Los Años Luz Discos Label, So I guess the light years and hmm. it's the pianist Javier Burin and his trio is rounded out by Esteban Fretes on bass and Juan Cava on drums. And there's no English information available about this uh, artist or recording. So did a little Spanish uh, detective work Ooh. and into uh, the Spanish. this is Buran's debut. As a leader, uh, he's recorded on a couple other albums uh, inspired by his music idols, Johann Sebastian Bach, which will become clear at
1: some point, uh, Keith Jarrett, which will also become clear. Keith Jarrett, also inspired by Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes.
0: So. yes. And uh, maybe CPE as well since that
1: new recording. Oh, we'll talk about that at in, the end of July. Yeah. Okay. Or, or beginning of August.
0: Anyway, the surprising thing about uh, Javier Burin is uh, he was born in 2001. So that's going to make him 22 years old. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, that uh, should uh, give you some uh, (laughs) thing to think about as you hear this recording. He was born in Buenos Aires. He began his formal music studies with a scholarship from the Instituto Musicarte 21 in 2010. He started three levels of musical language learning, cello and drums and rock band workshop that's kind of interesting Uh, and he was a singer bassist and drummer as well then 2013 he entered the Juan Pedro Esnaola School of Music and 2019 he entered the Manuel de Fala Conservatory for Jazz Studies and he still studies classical piano jazz piano harmony ensemble and counterpoint and well this is gonna be an interesting mix of material And uh, for our friends at The Same Difference, check out the versions of standards on (laughs) uh, this recording. This guy's bursting with talent. And uh, remember, (laughs) you're probably going to, if you listen to our podcast, you're not going to hear this anywhere else. Uh, But someday, I think you're going to hear about this kid. Uh, We're going to start out with uh, Cole Porter, credited tune. But it's not Night and Day. It's called Night and Night. Hmm. And uh, I think you should change the title because he's changed the tune in some interesting ways here. Well, this, you know, Porter's song when it came out is a little bit unusual for the time because it kind of had this uh, 48 bar chorus. There was a A, B, A, B, C, B form, and the C is the bridge in that form, but so it's going to be presented differently here. And so drum tom fills pickup into the eight bar intro of a descending bass and left-hand piano figures injected with piano chords. And
1: Mike, can you guess what time signature this tune is in? Well, being that we've been talking about it so often, I'm going to say 7-8, because I I wouldn't have identified (laughs) it myself, of course.
0: That's five episodes in a row, you know, with records picked by random other criteria, and they all have 7-8 tunes uh, on them. So there's something Mm. in the air. Something in the Um, air. Hmm. Anyway, keep your ear on those left-hand patterns that you hear at the beginning because they will be under the melody here in this interestingly reharmonized and re-metered version of this tune. (laughs) We get 24 measures of the melody uh, from Bourdain's piano and those left-hand figures. So the original, as I said, has this 48-bar structure, and we're just getting kind of a section of it. Nice crisp cymbal work and drums from Kava here, and then it gets turned over to Francis for an extended bass solo out of the box uh, with rhythmically energetic phrases. But then gets a solo next. It's an interesting one. I like how he starts out with reworked ideas from the melody. You can kind of hear where he's uh, jumping from, and he builds up with choppy phrases, and he's got those Keith Jared esque vocalizations in the background uh, that you hear as well. He builds into more extended lines of ideas, and a really forceful left hand that pushes things along, sometimes with two-handed figures and blocky chords. Uh, Some more of the left hand figures transition back to another 24 measure melody segment to wrap it up. It's a very interesting start to get things going. Track two, moving to a Burin original PF, and I wonder if that's for pianoforte. This one starts with some repeated ringing chords on piano and bass, unevenly spaced to create a feeling of anticipation. Burin takes the minor melody that moves closely with his chords. Basically, what he has here is a pretty and melancholy eight measure melody that repeats four times with little variations. And it reminded me of back in the spring, we heard uh, the great Czech pianist Emil Viklitsky, And uh, he was... A master at this taking a short melody and Hmm. turning it into like a whole, you know, incredible performance. That's kind of the idea here, I think. But again, listen to the rhythm on this track. The feel is like a slow four, but you'll notice that it's missing the last eighth note. So effectively, this is another seven, eight Mm -hmm. meter. Uh, It's just jumping ahead, uh, missing that last expected beat. Alfredis's bass rings softly, and Kava has nice light snare textures underneath everything. There's more ringing chords, like in the opening, to make a transition to bass and drums, then dropping out and i continuing on solo. Listen to how he builds things up and the interaction of his hands, and I thought this really shows some kind of Bach invention kind of uh, influence in his Mm -hmm. stylings here. Freitas and Kava return with the rhythm, and Burin continues soling with a really nice connected flow of lines and ideas, the odd meter keeping things pushing forward. He builds an intensity and then speed to a climax of zipping lines, comes down for a bit and then builds up with ringing piano over Kava's busy drums. It stops suddenly into more ringing intro chords and a final short descending piano line, and a pretty final Picardy third, the hmm. <laughs> ending. Uh, you don't hear that too often. Uh, mm, especially so, in jazz. <laughs> yeah. An ode to uh, his classical training. We're going to get another standard here. Uh, maybe this is my pick of the album for inventive reworked uh, tunes. Beautiful Love, uh, Wayne King, Victor Young, Egbert Van Alstyne. Uh, an old standard. Of course, Bill Evans' version is very famous. I also like uh, John Hicks' great pianist version of it a lot, too. And you'll probably not hear it like this uh, reinvention <laughs> again. I actually like this so much I posted this one on uh, our Facebook page yesterday because I thought everyone should hear this. Pudding starts it out solo with rapid triplet figures that have a kind of six-beat feeling. Bass and drums join in on the fifth measure of that, but the bass has a syncopated figure with a four-beat pattern, so now you've got this interesting polyrhythmic action uh, for total of 12 measures of intro, depending on how you count it. Uh, The melody continues with the rhythmic trickiness. I guess it's like in four, but check out the tricky bass and left-hand piano figures. And Budin interjects more right-hand rhythmic figures on the way. There's so much going on in here. It does simmer down, then into a bass solo from Freitas with aggressive attack and motion. Budin's next starting from shorter rhythmic phrases into ringing chords, and he's going to let loose on this one. Blazing runs, bluesy percussive chords, exploding with energy. They bring it back down for another run through the melody before Kava gets to take a drum solo. Then he builds up slowly with more intricate ideas around tight snare work at the center. The others join back in gradually to build up a swelling vamp of sound around him, and end with the piano triplet figures like we heard in the intro. A Burin original for track four, Wengro, and this starts as a ballad waltz. Burin plays the sparse melody with chords, and there's a bass pulse for each measure. We hear two eight measure segments, but then from the 17th measure things get interesting with undulating lines, it's kind of like the carpet is being rumpled and pulled under your feet, loosening the waltz feel for a bit before it returns, and then a double chime groove kind of briefly forms in Kava's drums then is kind of retracted. in builds ringing two-handed chords, there's a reset back to the melody in simplicity, and then into more chord-based improvisations from Budin that build an intensity and rhythmic variety. It transforms into a swinging waltz with ride cymbal and walking bass for a bit as Budin gets into some high register lines of improvisation. Things get soft again for another melody section, it soon gets more rumbling and the little double time uh, thing is heard again and then a final melody section into pressing chords and final trickles that Burin holds out as it fades away. It's kind of like a recurring theme and different variations I felt as it uh, you know comes back to the source and then expands on it. So it's a fresh and flowing kind of tune. Now, uh, Hmm. track five, uh, Sonny Rollins' Tenor Madness. And, uh, well, you know, historically, this is an interesting tune because uh, it's from the album of the same name. It's the only known recording featuring both Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. Uh, It's kind of funny. I've heard other tenor players play it, but I've never heard uh, it really without a sax. Hmm. And, uh, well, it's originally kind of a straight... 12-bar blues tune, but hold on to your seat (laughs) and strap in for this one. Budin starts it out with a cycle of chords. Uh, They get a few skips in the rhythm, and then you start to see what's happening here. He takes the melody at express train speed, while the bass and drums and his left hand stick with the opening loping feel, uh, meter, and tempo. Then with a few switches-ups to match what's going on in the right hand on the way, Once they get going into the piano solo, everyone keeps it speedy and it gets really flying and frantic with plenty of vocalizations behind it. Uh, He works through a rhythmic romp on the way and through some repeated ringing right hand figures before it dissipates into ringing and slow bass figures from Fretis, who gets left all alone then to work on the start of his solo. And enters with backing chords, hinting at things to speed up and then the bass line gets busier, Kava adding soft brushwork to work the fast tempo. Burin and Kava trade some 12-bar choruses and then shorter four-measure phrases, then a return to the intro idea for another run through the melody, the big pause before the final chord. Yes, it's madness in rhythms, (laughs) but it's an exciting uh, bit of fun on this tune. Track 6, another Burin
1: original Navidad. Just Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess. A little early uh, Christmas here as summer in. comes.
0: Uh, it starts with two minutes of solo piano on Budin's slow melody with interesting bassline movement and chords that keep an even kind of push forward. Bodin then introduces a hint of syncopation just before the bass and drums come in. Freitas is on electric bass here. Kava's cymbal get a flowing groove going, Then Freitas gets an interesting effect also through the solo as it goes. Uh, Listen to the developing piano and left hand interaction then. Things open up and transform into a fast swing with a walking bass for a piano solo from Boudin, bursting with energetic lines and percussive chords. He works into rippling high notes and then chiming chords, then back into the previous groove with bass figures uh, to finish it up. And what you'll notice about this young player is his left hand is really impressive. Uh, in its independence, forcefulness, and kind of expression of different ideas, even when his right hand is doing things in parallel. Track seven, John Coltrane's Moment's Notice. Now if you know this tune, you can recognize the melody here, but uh, it's going to take another rhythmic transformation uh, compared to what you're used to. The first section feels almost like a slow five beat feel that then transforms into a doubled up 4-beat, and that feel keeps shifting until they transform it into a driving fast 4-4 four four swing under Bodin's piano solo. They pull it back for another transform melody section before it gets quiet for an acoustic bass solo from Freitas with busy lines, uh, but only soft drum textures, and back to the driving swing for more piano from Burin with really well-connected extended lines working up and down the keyboard into chiming chords They get back to the melody once again, then take it into a completely new syncopated vamp for Kava to roll out some tight drum ideas. One more melody run, and then they end it with a modulated chiming chords idea from Burin to a slow down. And the last track is an original by the bassist Freitas called Interstitio. Burin starts it with a sparse rubato piano opening. Bass and drums join in on a rising synced line with piano. It's at a slow dirge of a tempo and a short melancholy melody line of about 10 measures, depending if you include the last measure, that ends with a synced up rising line in the piano and bass. Kava has interesting soft subdivisions that give it motion, and Freitas gets a ringing bass solo over tom work from Kava. Burin's got a solo as well of hauntingly ringing chords, and notes working into rhythmic interval ideas that speed up into waves, and then a final slowly unfolding melody line ending up with that rising line we've heard previously. And that's it. a kind of busting with talent and bursting with energy on this adventurous debut. His own compositions and also the final uh, original from Fritis are comparatively introspective, but it's the reworking of the jazz standards with complex rhythmic ideas that really stand out here. A great piano sound, phrasing, excellent solos, and a left hand that constantly draws your attention. At 22 years old, what's he going to be like when he's 30? It's (laughs) scary to imagine. Francis and Kavar are fine too, working in sync on the challenging transformations and ready at a moment's notice to shift gears with the pianist. I like the electric bass variety thrown in there too for a little different effect. And I don't know when this young pianist's name is going to show up and get attention in the English and international press somewhere, but definitely keep your eye and ear out for him.
1: I think this is the uh, third pianist that you've... Uh... Kind of discovered for me you know so that i can find <laughs> the other two was stephen feifke was one He's oh, he's right. a, he's an arranger and, and yeah. also billy test you like the lot too oh, yeah
0: i love billy and test,
1: yeah. when i think about you know the way you say oh these young pianists are just really great and you all have to hear them now you have another one here yeah <laughs> I kind of put him in that class, I guess, Javier Burino, except he's a little different. I mean, you know, he's Argentinian, first of all. And the first thing I noticed, even before you told me that he considered Bach and Keith Jarrett as his influences, there's a lot of classical elements in the playing here. And Bach would, you know, sort of indicate that since it's such a noty technical music. And Keith Jarrett, too, because he was a, he improvised a lot, but he had a big technique as well, you know, so, you know, almost a classical technique. So he really is in that sort of um, realm, let's say, yeah. on this album. Also, even the way his his um, compositions go, the, they build up and release tension, mm-hmm. more like a classical work than a jazz work, you know, right? So it's pretty interesting. His piano playing, he has a beautiful tone as well. Uh, the technique is very clean and even. Yeah, he, he has this way of playing classical patterns and jazz rhythms, so the music has a sense of moving in a certain harmonic direction, even though it's like... Yeah. And then he'll have like some straight jazz licks as well. It's a nice kind of trick for me that worked really well on this album. Uh, The jazz albums, of course, come through. And this is a jazz album first and foremost. It's a great sounding recording too, I think. Uh, The sound of the trio is richly captured. Good compositions. Many of them are very pretty. And there's some swinging moments in them too. Yeah. All all in all, this is a bit of a surprise. And now you got something else for me to sort of uh, pursue. And I I hope we're the ones that introduce them to an English speaking audience.
0: Yeah, he deserves to be heard, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, someone this young, you just, uh, with all this talent, you wonder what direction they'll go in next, but, um
1: We'll be keeping yeah, our eyes on. I'm sure.
0: Scary. Yeah. <laughs> Scary to be that good at such a young age. But. Yeah,
1: how do they do that? There's, and not only that, there's so many. Yeah. You know, it's like they the yeah. have such talent, you know, like.
0: All right, and unusual for me, I got a vocal pick for my last. Um, oh,
1: you like vocal. It just depends who it is, really.
0: I'm just extremely picky yeah. about vocals. you got to have a voice that I want to hear. Right. Or else, uh, you know, that's why I don't do many vocal uh, episodes. And it's really right. hard for me to wait to get three that I really like.
1: It is a very personal sound. Like it's exactly. Like it's, you know, tied to the, the person. They like, can't right. really change it, you know, so.
0: Yeah. Anyway, I do like this one a lot. And this is the vocalist Robin McKell
2: hmm.
0: with her new recording impressions of Ella. Ella Fitzgerald, that is, on the Doxy label. This came out June 2nd. And I was also attracted because, uh, well, she's got one of the best accompanists in the world. You can't do any better than Kenny Barron.
1: On the piano. Yeah, one of my favorites.
0: And not only that, but <laughs> the rest of the rhythm section, Peter Washington, Kenny Washington, yeah. who you know are often together in other combos. Well, they're part of the Bill Sharlop trio who just always knocks us out whenever we hear one of Mm -hmm. his recordings. And so I was uh, attracted, you know, just from the personnel here. Now, Robin McKell, I guess her birth name is Robin McElhatton, if I'm saying that correctly. She's from Rochester, New York. So another upstate New York native fond, well, mostly fond memories of of youth.
1: I think we all have mostly fond memories of youth. There are just those ones that are kind of, you know, right. She's
0: the daughter of a liturgical vocalist, and she took classical piano lessons and also played French horn for 10 years. And I wonder if that's got something to do with her keen sense of pitch, because brass players have to uh, listen really carefully. You know, the brass instruments aren't perfectly in tune.
1: And especially the French horn, which seems like a really 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 tough instrument to get in tune and get a good tone out of, yeah.
0: Exactly. She attended Mm. University of Miami and also went on to Berklee College of Music, graduating in 1999. She also taught voice classes there for three years. She took third place in the 2004 Thelonious Monk Vocal Jazz Competitions in Washington, D.C. And her debut recording, 2006, introducing Robin McKell, has her swinging on standards with a big band backing things up and her next recording was you know rather uh, swinging jazz oriented but she's also done kind of rhythm and blues and more rocky material and if you check out her recordings with the fly tones like heart of memphis there's some country and other influences mixed in there and her last recording before this one 2020 alterations it's kind of got a jazzy and also some kind of pop sensibilities melded into it but here she's taking a big slice you know of jazz history with tunes from the catalog of the great ella fitzgerald so if you're going to do that well you couldn't ask for a better rhythm section than Mm -hmm. this impressions of ella so what's the impression well I think it comes through as we dive into the material. I'll give you a little historical perspective on the tunes. And, uh, well, I forgot to mention, we also get a little guest appearance from Kurt Elling along the way, too, right. on one tune. So we're going to start out with "O oh, the Devil Moon, Burton Lane and Yip Harburg tune. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald originally recorded this in 1955 with an orchestra directed by Benny Carter. Well, this one gets started with a 12-measure trio intro with a very cool bass ostinato line from Peter Washington. They keep that going as Mikkel starts the verse, but switch it up to a nice chugging walking bass and swing feel right from the Old Devil Moon lyric on the B section. Mikkel has a really good swing feel, lightness, and... She has that sense of a little lilt in the phrasing Hmm. that made Fitzgerald so fun to listen to. She's not copying it. She's still got her own persona. She she
1: really doesn't sound anything like Ella Fitzgerald. No, no, but that phrasing... She doesn't even try to do the style, but yeah, Yeah, I know what you mean. That
0: lilt is uh, apparent in there, and so I enjoyed that. Uh, The trio keeps the rhythmic feel change-ups going with nice little breaks as well. There's a solo break for Baron to get a really smooth and relaxed piano solo on this one. Then they reset with the ostinato feel for Mikel to return with more verses. She has nice subtle embellishments and a really great sense of pitch. Uh, the trio ends it mm. with a tight, syncopated ending. Track two, My One and Only, and not to be confused with My One and Only Love, another mm. uh, Justin. This is just My One and Only. Guy Wood, Ira Gershwin, Robert Mellon, and George Gershwin, written for the 1927 Broadway musical funny face. And so Ella recorded this a few times. 1951 with Ellis Larkins, 1959 with Nelson Riddle. This one is a piano and vocal duo, just Barron and Mikkel. And Barron gets it going with a medium tempo bouncing eight measure intro. Mikkel has a fun time with the enunciation on this one. little Mm pushing accents on the lines, and Barron has a solo with a great groove. His left hand keeps everything together on this tune. Mikkel is back for another verse and a kind of bluesy ending with some high chimes from Barron and a little rhythmic ending. Very nice duo. Track 3, Billy Strayhorn's Lush Life Ella Fitzgerald recorded this originally in 1957 and she also did a version with Joe Pass, the great guitarist, in 1974. It's so a flowing rubato solo piano intro from Baron. Mikkel sounds really good on this tune. Nice phrasing on the rising lines and a mix of sultry and tenderness in the qualities. Bass and drums come in on the life is lonely again line. Uh, but Kenny Washington is so soft, he's barely audible. If he's there at all in spots, I think he might have gone out for a sandwich because <laughs> he wasn't mm-hmm. needed too much. He could just pick up uh, light drums somewhere. This tune requires a lot of quick jumps of vocal register and dynamic contrasts, and Mikkel sounds very confident doing so. Peter Washington gets a warm and busy bass soloing contrast here. Mikkel is back to finish things off, and the final rising line on Those Whose Lives Are Lonely Too is very nicely synced with the piano and bass. Great subtle vibrato on the last note to end it. Track four, this is a big Fitzgerald one because she would swing the hell out of it whenever Mm -hmm. she would sing it. How High the Moon, a William Lewis, Nancy Hamilton tune. It's from the 1940 Broadway Review 2 for the show and Ella Fitzgerald recorded in 1948 and also 1960, live with the Paul Smith Quartet. I think she has another recording of it on Verve in 1964 as well. It's you know one of her main... Uh, pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trio starts this one out with an eight measure intro of some playfully hesitated chords and drum fills from Kenny Washington. It gets off to a chugging swing, starting with the How High the Moon uh, is the name of this song verse, which I think you know, Fitzgerald sang as a last verse sometimes because it usually starts with the Somewhere There's Music. You know, that's how mm-hmm. I always think of this tune. Okay. It, it doesn't start with that, but you can see why. Um, then Kenny Washington gets a little solo break and then Mikkel comes in with the Somewhere There's Music verse and it's like shifted up to high gear wow. uh, for a faster swing. So it's, mm. it's got this uh, dual tempo kind of uh, thing setting it off. It's a nice change up. Well, she's got the swing and the lilt here. A little fun hesitation. She can get that little burr or almost like a vocal fry just for a split second in things, which is kind of nice. Uh, we get a little scatting mid verse for fun as well and then Baron has an animated piano solo. When Mikel returns, they mix up the feel in fun ways, first with ringing, repeated bass, and cymbal hits, and then they downshift it into the slower swing tempo from earlier again for an ending with a nice high note from Mikel. Track five, I Won't Dance, Jerome Kern and Dorothy Fields. Well, originally... It was for uh 1934 London musical, Three Sisters, which flopped. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it uh, was forgotten. And then the next year, Fields helped to uh, redo this for a film version. And that was for the musical Roberta. And then okay. you know, it became a jazz standard as well. L, L. Fitzgerald recorded it in 1957. Uh, also, Ella and Louis with Louis Armstrong. Right. Oh, that's, that's in 1957 and then she recorded it with Nelson Riddle in 1962 and Barron and Mikkel get it out uh, to a flowing rubato start and then we get a little conversation going with Kurt Elling worked yeah. uh, into the main tune they trade off phrases playfully they're having a good time and uh, Elling sounds really nice when he can get in that
1: lower baritone range. He, he's got this really suave voice, you know, yeah. he kinda sounds really like a man about town, you know.
0: <laughs> I like the contrast, uh, the playfulness, their traded lines, but when they sync up together on right. shared lines, it's pretty tight and yeah. uh, that works well. Uh, the trio gives it a lifting modulation midway through the tune for another round of the vocal parts. And they finish up with some fun conversational exchanges over a little vamp by the trio into a final, nicely harmonized, I won't dance uh, lyric. Yeah.
1: So good fun. And, yeah. uh, and nice, uh, uh, she has some uh, classy sounding French on this track too, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. yeah,
0: she does. Yeah,
1: I like her voice in general, but
0: right. you know, maybe I want to hear her sing all in French too. You know? That could be okay. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's just the human voice. That's why I feel... I'm I'm really hot or cold when I hear a vocalist, you know, I, right, right. I mean, most of them are right out, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no. you know, she's right in right from the start. And, yeah. uh, so far I'm enjoying everything and that's going to continue yeah. with, uh, George and Ira Gershwin's Embraceable You go all the way back to 1928 for an unpublished operetta East is West. And then it was published in 1930 for the Broadway musical Girl Crazy. Ella Fitzgerald recorded in 1959 with Nelson Riddle, also as part of a medley in 1983 with Andre Previn on uh, the recording Nice Work, if you can get it. Here it's got a gentle solo piano opening from Barron and a bass pickup line into the melody. Soft ballad, drum brushwork from Kenny Washington and ringing tones uh, from Peter Washington make a nice canvas for Mikkel who sounds relaxed warm, and has really good attention to dynamics on this tune. Barron has a tasty, tinkling solo here with ringing high register notes, and Mikel returns for a final verse and nicely slowed ending with a descending piano line that then works into rising clusters of notes over bowed bass. Kenny Barron's the one
1: you want to be your accompanist. I, mean, I know, he's good. he's good all the way through, really. Yeah. He's
0: a great pianist, but he really makes other people shine. You know, like those recordings he did, Stan Getz' last recordings, just right. the two of them. Oh, yeah. He just makes everyone sound great. And uh, if I was a vocalist, I'd want him behind
1: me. All right. I want to say something else about this tune. Uh, George Gershwin, we always think of him as the the great melodies and all this thing. But when you have titles like Embraceable You or, you know, Nice Work, If You Can Get it, these are great titles. Yeah, those, you know, titles. That's, that's Ira doing, coming up with those, I think. Right. And... uh just the whole thing is just so tight and fantastic. They were mm. a great songwriting team.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Mm.
0: All right, another great tune for track seven. Duke Ellington and Bob Russell, Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me. And Eller recorded this with Duke Ellington and his orchestra in 1957. Baron gets it going with a solo opening. and Mikkel joins in with a flowing rubato. Bass and vocals move together nicely with piano answering phrases as it gets going. That was a nice touch. Great relaxed tempo and feel, and fine phrasing from Mikkel here. They make some trio breaks for her to belt out phrases with some bluesy zest on this one. And Baron has a restrained, in contrast, and delicate solo. Uh, It's the longest track on the recording, and after Mikkel returns, they finish it up with some final phrase repeats of You Never Will. Yeah, classy take. We've got uh, Robin's Nest by Illinois Jaquette and Charles Thompson. Uh, I'm not sure about when Ella Fitzgerald recorded this, maybe 1947 on the Verve label. I think you can only find it kind of in like collections and recordings from certain years. So I'm not sure what the name of the original recording would have been. Anyway, here after a bouncy intro with a break, Mikkel has really good interactions with Peter Washington's floating uh, the lyrics over the bass lines, uh, tight hi-hat as well, until Barron comes back with chords. A nice inflection on the all-the-way-down lyrics in there, and she transitions it into some fun scatting as well. Peter Washington gets a bass solo midway with great rhythmic attacks, and Barron follows him. Then Mikkel has a really great bluesy swooping phrases uh, in the final lines of the tune to close it out. Track nine, Taking a Chance on Love, Vernon Duke, Ted Fetter, and John Latouche from the 1940 Broadway musical Cabin in the Sky. Fitzgerald recorded this all the way back in 1955. She also did a version with uh, Andre Previn, as a director of the orchestra, and I really like the intro on this one. Rising piano chords to rumbling holds with skittering cymbals for Mikel to build up some tension with the repeated here I go again line, and it really builds up. And then a bumpy, syncopated, taking a chance repeated section that's punctuated by Kenny Washington before the tune gets off to a light swing with loping bass lines contrasting with ringing repeated notes. A nice phrasing from Mikkel here again as she gets into some lyric and scat vocal exchanges with Barron's piano before he stretches out for a bit on his own with some great two-handed ideas in his solo. A good build-up to the end, using that intro idea of rising chords to push it to a held-out note from Mikkel. And I really enjoyed this arrangement of the tune. All right, track 10, April in Paris, Vernon Duke and Yip Harburg. This is 1932 for the Broadway musical walk a little faster. And Ella Fitzgerald recorded this 1956 with Count Basie, same year also with Louis Armstrong, and 1976 uh, version of it with Oscar Peterson. Well, it's a unique one here. Uh, The intro has these high ringing repeated bass and drum clicks over Barron's soft piano. It's a relaxed and even beat for Mikel to phrase softly over with the lyrics almost getting an, into a kind of cha-cha groove. This is an even kind of beat here. Baron builds a classy solo on this tune. And then after Mikkel returns for another verse, they transform the ending into a kind of a dreamy m- modal mood. It almost sounds like a soft maiden voyage kind of uh, hmm. ending take to it. So, yeah, I thought it was a nice transformation. Fades out, though. Yeah, it does fade out. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to end up... <laughs> with another tune by the Gershwins, Soon. And this is for 1930, uh, a revision of the musical Strike Up the Band. Ella Fitzgerald recorded this in 1951 with Ellis Larkins. So this is also just a piano and voice duo to finish things up. So Soft and Ringing Piano from Baron makes an intro, joined by Mikkel with gentle phrasing on the lyrics. She builds up intensity gradually, And Baron takes a masterfully restrained piano solo here. When Mikkel returns, it really gets infused with an R&B sense for climax. And I completely forgot about Ella, as Robin Mikkel channels Gladys Knight for us here. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, And uh, then it all comes down to a gentle and soft ending. Yeah wise choice to uh, save this one for the last tune, but I, I like the little peak of other influences in here. So as I mentioned, I'm picky about vocalists, which is why I don't choose many uh, uh, vocal recordings for our program. But this recording gets high marks from me. Robin McCall has a pleasing tone quality to her voice that makes me want to keep listening to her. But in addition to that, she's got great pitch control, phrasing and enunciation, and she shows a very mature style. She doesn't oversing on this recording. She captures the swinging spirit and happy lilt of Ella Fitzgerald while keeping her own personality. The arrangements are tasty with little twists on rhythmic feels and change-ups along the way. You can't ask for a better rhythm section than this one here and Kurt Elling makes for a fun guest midway through. Some of uh, Mikkel's R&B influences peek through as a reminder of her versatility, and i imagine I'm gonna be listening to this recording again more in the future.
1: Yeah, well, the first thing I need to say is I loved all the songs on this album. You really can't go wrong, they're just such great songs. And Mikkel, as you've said a lot of this already, I think she's an inviting vocalist. She's got this rich, warm tone, and I liked also the, uh, she has this comfortable sort of intimacy, in the ballads, you know, it's intimate, but it's like someone you've been with for a while. So <laughs> you kind of yeah. have that, you know, that kind of feeling. It makes you feel sort of gives you a good feeling. Yeah. The real appeal of these interpretations, I'd say, is her tone. She sings these familiar mm-hmm. songs in, in a straightforward fashion, which is also nice to hear because, I, you know, I want to get like, I always want to hear updated versions of these songs sung as straightforwardly more or less. We don't hear enough of them nowadays, I think, these songs. But when I think of, like, say, because she mentioned Ella Fitzgerald, I think of Ella's performance of the songs. She's, she added, like, a lot of life to them. And we get it. We have that here in, in Mikkel's, too. But I, Ella's just so, you know, she's got such life to her yeah. singing that I can't really forget her. I like the forward vocals and the fidelity to the songs. I think I would have liked her to take a few more chances at times. I was thinking in, um, like in uh, when she had the conversation, I won't dance. It was fun. It was the yeah. the conversation she had with um, Kurt Elling. Yeah, it's playful, but it's it's kind of more sophisticated and classy in style. It's just who who she is, I think. But I was mm-hmm. thinking about um, like Lady Gaga on um, you know the Tony Bennett album, like they did "Lady's a Tramp," and it was kind of the interplay was fun. When you know mm-hmm. it was more fun in that case. It was sort of fun here too, but I just. I just wanted a little bit more of that, Mm. I think. That's all. That's the only thing I have. It's great singing, though, I have to say. I may even wind up getting this. (laughs) We'll have to see.
0: Yeah. Like I said, check out some of her earlier albums. And I think maybe the hard thing that's been for her over her career is deciding really which direction to go in. Because she's really good at more R&B and Rocky type things. And she shows here that she can really swing, too. So where should she focus? I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, here's here's another example I've got here. Like she's on how high the moon, how high the moon. She scats for a bit, but only for a short time. I would have liked to have heard her like stretch that out a bit and see oh, okay. where she would go with it. You know, that's mm. what I mean. I wanted to hear more of that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, good, beautifully recorded. It's kind of a little. It, it could have been a little less formal, I think. That's all. Oh, okay. Okay, that's it. But uh, great singing though, and uh, good renditions of these songs. I was really happy to hear them again, and beautiful voice. I I can't really praise her. Yeah, tone and vocal vocalism is enough really very it good passed my strict
0: standards for a voice that I can continue listening to and right. smiling about you know so. yeah yeah really good I wonder what she'll do next if she'll continue on with some more swing type things or yeah I enjoyed hearing her voice on the other styles as well. And right. uh, the uh, those recordings have really good uh, instrumentation too. So if you haven't heard Mikkel's uh, previous work, go back and check that out. There's a mix of all kinds of things there. She's very versatile and talented. All right, that's uh, episode 119. We're going to be in the can, cranking <laughs> over to 120 next week.
2: Yeah. Wow, <laughs> you
1: know
0: that's, we're, that's we're pretty we've amazing. exceeded 700
1: recordings now. Yeah. So, to, to think that i would have listened to all those recordings not all those recordings but 700 recordings anyway but not not with my computer in my lap
0: <laughs> well you know i'd like to put it out there if if there's anyone out there who's who can tell us that they've listened to more music than we have i'd, I'd yeah. like to know about them and yeah see if they have any other problems
1: in their life. I, I i have to say i i don't i don't think i'd ever want to meet them though so no, just you know, let us know well, <laughs> just, <laughs> but, but don't go don't visit
0: <laughs> yeah neither one of us would have time to meet each other <laughs> yeah we wouldn't have good. time to meet them Too anyways busy, listening,
1: be, to busy listening to music right
0: anyway we've got a plan already for next week you've got an interesting program lined up there. well
1: we have been talking about doing a sax program and i had three well i don't actually have three sax recordings i have mm. two classical sax recordings very rare to have and i had right. two of them and one of them is um Uh, Albon Gerhardt on the cello and a sax quintet. So I decided to round the program out with a cello album too. And I know you like cello music, so I thought we'd put that in the way. So we're going cello, we're we're going cello and sax quintet, then we're going cello, and then we're going solo sax, our favorite sax, the baritone sax. Oh, yeah. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this week. It'll be a pretty interesting week. It's going to be all brassy again, though.
0: Unfortunately, I didn't have... Any Barry Sax on my list, and I didn't uh, have a real good group of uh sax music th- This
1: might be the only Barry Sax uh, classical album we ever hear on this <laughs> it's podcast. It's very possible, yeah. <laughs> it's very, very possible. possible. So I've got uh, so make sure you tune in, people.
0: I'm <laughs> cracking new trombone release that just came out on the Positone label, mm. so we get a new Positone uh, recording out there, and then I've got uh, two big band uh, recordings. Oh, um, so yeah. I'm not going to tell you about it. It's going to be a secret uh-huh. because it's going to be a, a, premiere preview oh. recording. You know, something we've got, uh, we've got access a pre-release to. because it's release. special.
1: So, uh, <laughs> we're
0: going to, uh, check that out and, uh, let you know about it a week before you can hear about it. So you can listen to us, uh, talk about it first and then check it out later in the week, next week. So, if you want to know what that is, well, it won't be on a playlist, but I'll get it listed up. Anyway, that playlist for the rest of the albums will go up on Deezer and Facebook a few hours after this episode. So if you want to get listening early, go check us out on Facebook or Deezer, and you can find out what those recordings are. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo.
1: Yeah, my this is my brother's company. His uh, yeah. birthday's coming up this week, oh, really? so happy birthday, Richard. June 15th, yeah. Oh, yeah. Happy yeah.
0: birthday, Richard. And as we mentioned before, do check out the same difference jazz standard podcast. There'll be a link to it in the description. And once we finish up talking here, their promo will follow after that, so we can round out your jazz listening for the week.
1: There's a there's a <laughs> there's a famous um, line in an Italian movie, uh, Alberto Sordi, where he's kind of trying to. Um, eat like an American and he decides he can't do that and he's got a he's got this plate of pasta <laughs> and he says to the plate of pasta, like, you know, I didn't like the way you looked at me so now I'm going to have to kill you and he eats the plate of pasta <laughs> and I'm eyeing my uh, recordings for next week thinking the same thing. Oh, Don't like the way okay. they're looking at me so now I'm going to have to like just devour them and, <laughs> and listen to them Get all. Get an early start. Right.
0: So have a good week of listening and we'll see you again next week with some cello, sax and big band for episode 120.
1: Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards,